0: May 40 here. We are going out live right now across Odyssey. We are going out live across Rumble. We're going out live across my Facebook page and my Facebook profile. We are going out live on YouTube. The whole world has the ability to tune into this channel. All right, what's the conventional wisdom on the Kanye West going on Alex Jones, Kanye West, Nick Fuentes, Milo. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me the conventional wisdom is that uh, Kanye West is having a mental breakdown, which I, I think uh, Kanye does have some mental problems, but I think that's only scratching the surface of what's going on. Uh, conventional wisdom is that uh, Milo is an opportunist and a, a savvy operator and i think that's that's true and the conventional wisdom is that uh, nick fuentes means what he says and says what he means and uh, nick is solid nick isn't all over the place like there's a there's a conventional arc to nick fuentes's career over the past four years so he's not as volatile as kanye west now i accept that uh, kanye west probably has some mental health issues beyond the average. So here's my definition of, of mental illness. All right, you've got a you got a wrist, all right. If you're able to do everything that a wrist needs to be able to do, such as use my activator here, all right, then your wrist is working. You don't have a, a wrist dysfunction, a wrist illness. Everything you would want a wrist to do, right, my wrist is doing. All right. Kanye West. Is his mental health doing everything for Kanye that uh, Kanye would want it to do? So we would not want to, right? We would consider it dysfunctional if you just lie in bed all day. We would consider it dysfunctional if you cut ties with the people most important to you and there's no significant gain, all right? So is, is Kanye West mentally ill? I'm not sure. So he, he does seem grandiose and as someone highly prone to grandiosity myself, right? So when I get grandiose, I alienate myself from people around me. I reduce my opportunities for connection in life. I become increasingly isolated and I'm less effective in the world. So is Kanye cutting himself off from other people with whom he often has long running ties. Yes. Is Kanye less effective? Yes. Is Kanye increasingly isolated? Yes. So yeah, you can make it a good, a good case that he's going through some, some problems with, with his mental health, but that doesn't get at the core of, you know, why is he going death calm three on the Jews? right? So there are a lot of people with with mental illness, but then why do some of these people go after the Jews and other people don't? And it seems like for for many of these artists, they have a Jewish manager and they have resentment against a Jewish manager and they have resentment against Jews as middlemen. So Jews are kind of a classic middleman minority. And a lot of people think that they can make a lot more money. They can have a lot more success in life if they just get rid of the middlemen. I remember when I worked in, in gardening and I wanted to quit my job working for this landscaping firm. I remember the the owner would call me a lot of derogatory names. One day I said, I'm getting tired of being called Dick Sniff. And he said, oh, you must have gotten another job. <laughs> and I said, yeah. He said, okay, well, if you want, you can make today your last day. And I said, oh, okay. So I, I told my new employer, Doug Hanslick of Dominion Enterprises, who just like treated people like gold. And I I told him my my brilliant idea, we'll we'll take these saplings that you buy for $2 and I'll transplant them into bigger pots, right? And instead of paying $20 for plants, we'll just pay $2, transplant them, let let them grow for six months. Now, there's there's a reason that everyone doesn't do that, right? Because it takes time, it takes a lot of effort. You have to make sure that these, these plants get water and fertilizer and you have to then wait for three, six, nine months a year. For the, the transplant to, to work effectively. So, there's a reason there are middlemen minorities, right? There's a reason that artists tend to have agents and managers, and that these agents and managers get paid pretty well. Agents typically take 10%, managers typically take uh, 15%. It's not usually because they're doing absolutely nothing. And so, Kanye seems driven, like many artists, to rebel against his management, to rebel against middlemen. And to rebel against people who he thinks are getting rich on, on the basis of his talents, he doesn't really see these other parties as contributing. So I think this is not effective for Kanye. He, he's lost about a billion dollars, right? I would say that that uh, his, his mental evaluation of, of reality is not serving him. So a, a grandiosity leading to placing insufficient value on these middlemen people and institutions has led him to make bad decisions against his self-interest, costing him a billion dollars. So Kanye wants to set up his own bank, his own social media, his own fashion companies. He wants to do all these things on his own without middlemen. And Jews are frequently managers. They're frequently agents. They're frequently a middleman minority And so I think this is part of of Kanye's reaction against Jews. I think the bigger part of Kanye's reaction against Jews is a thread in black life. It happens more often among the more successful and the more educated blacks is that they really hate white people. And so for many of these black people like Kanye, they really hate white people and they actually see Jews as the embodiment they see Jews as the embodiment of white people. So Elliot Blatt, what's going on, man?
1: Can, Hello, well, can you hear me?
0: Yes, beautifully.
1: Yes, I hear you. Speak up, man.
0: Okay, I can hear Elliot, but he's uh, he's disappeared. So I think this is different from from you know your, your normal level. I can of hear Elliot, but you know, anti Semitism. I think this for Kanye is primarily now an anti-Black thing. Uh, Elliot, I could hear you, and now you've disappeared. Uh, how about now? Can you hear me now? Yep, yep, I can hear you. What's, what's going Thank on, bro? You. Oh, man, long
2: time no talk. So, uh, yeah, like, I can't, the news is just too funny. Like, each day, it's like a new layer of um, dopamine.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> on the layer of dopamine that I couldn't even ingest the day before. It's just <laughs> so insane. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's got to be a like an end to it, right? there's, there's got to be some sort of feels like the news has got to go really bad really soon, otherwise, to, I
0: mean, boring.
3: I mean, yeah, we don't get but, but not but not even boring,
2: but like <laughs> you know, bad and so, you know, sad making. Otherwise, how how are you going to sort of balance out all this dopamine that's been flowing in the news lately? Right, am I looking? That's the way I see the world, anyway. But, yeah, I've been a busy little beaver here. Um, It's like, if I pick up the phone now, I'm expecting, it's like I'm expecting this high dose of insane entertainment. And if I don't get it, I feel, like, deprived. Yeah. So, It's got uh, 2016 energy. (laughs) It has, but there's a new twist. You know, at the same time. You know, history doesn't repeat. Look, it rhymes. Oh, that's good, Elliot. Oh well, that's a it's a it's a cliche. I I wasn't it's nothing I, I had coined. But oh. uh yeah, it's it's 2016 esque, let's say. But there's definitely there's the, the the chessboard
1: is different now. Radically different.
3: Yeah.
2: And, and um what w- what's we got reaction? Elon. Mm-hmm. We got Elon you know, owning Twitter. And now Twitter is like this, it's effectively, it's like, well, like like there's two news sources. Now there's the traditional media and then there's Twitter. Right. And the two interact in this strange way. There's a sort of mutual feeding that the two do upon one another. I, I haven't really sorted it out, but Twitter in and of itself is a news item and a
1: news source. You know it, what
3: I
0: mean? It's a
2: lot more fun these days on Twitter. <laughs> it's so fun. I don't feel worthy of this, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when I, grew, when I was growing up, you know, I grew up in rural New England, you know, and I, we had two proper channels. And then a third channel, the CBS channel, which came in, but it was really snowy, you know, and it, it was just, you know, it, it wasn't, it was really barely watchable. And then there was this PBS station that also came in, but nobody ever watched because it was always like two guys in suits droning on about something, you know, it was really tedious. So uh, now we've gone to this world where there's a billion cable channels and there's a trillion YouTube channels. (laughs) and like you just sort of thrust into this sea of media and are meant to fend for yourself, fend for yourself.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a brand new world, and all those people who predicted that uh, Twitter wouldn't change under Elon Musk, I think it's pretty clear that they're wrong.
2: <laughs> they're very wrong, very wrong indeed. Uh, um, yeah. So I I haven't even tuned into any of today. I don't know if there's any other developments, you know, post-hooded Kanye. I don't know if there's been anything of import that happened pro- after that.
0: Oh, um, they're just people's. They're just people's opinions.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: What, what is it
2: America mean? got kicked out of the World Cup. Yeah, so. I got up
0: at 2 a.m. to watch that.
2: Okay. And how did Aussie do?
0: Oz... Uh, Aussie lost 2-1. Uh, to one.
2: But To Argentina, really?
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think Argentina is actually a favorite to win.
0: Yes, they are. It was the biggest discrepancy, so Argentina is ranked approximately third in the world. Australia is ranked approximately 38 in the world. So. Mm. A pretty big discrepancy, but I assume you wouldn't be getting up at 2 a.m. To, to watch this. Stuff. No,
2: no, no, no. It's sports. It's like I treat sports like you know a wounded animal. You know, if it crosses my path, I'll tend to it. Otherwise, I don't go looking for it.
0: Now, I've been reading this book, *Economics*, and it makes the point that uh, sports saves thousands of lives because it gives socially awkward, depressed people an easy way to connect with other people because you don't really need to bring anything to the table to connect with other sports fans. And so it gives people meaning and connection who who otherwise are solely lacking it.
2: Yeah, I, I can see how that makes sense, but, you know, me looking back on my own sort of interaction with sports over the years I see it as a, probably a very unproductive diversion. I feel like it's sort of, it's not as bad as drugs. It's sort of in this in between, like I used to, I used to watch tennis match after tennis match after tennis match, you know, like an addict and this, these were all during the prime hours of the day. So I'm very conscious of opportunity cost, you know. And so, yeah, I, I can see the value sports pro- provides, you know, sort of event. It's an outlet for aggression that you can't normally express in polite society. So, I, you know, I see its value. But uh, I don't think, I, I think there's still a significant opportunity cost, especially the way so many tr- people treat sports. What yeah, say um, you, maybe?
0: But uh, someone, someone like you, you don't suffer from a surplus of community in your life. You don't suffer from a surplus of, of connection. You don't suffer from a surplus of anodyne, safe things to talk about with with people, su- such as at work or you know, in, on the subway or something. And and sports with. No cost investment provides all those things to you. Like, uh, approximately 3 billion people are going to watch part of the World Cup. You know, over a billion people are going to watch the final of the World Cup. Mm-hmm. You have an effortless way of making controversy free human connection with people if you just pay a little bit of attention.
2: But is it real connection or is it pseudo connection, my dude?
0: It depends. It all depends on what you do with it. I I went to a crowded bar this morning filled with 95% Australia fans. And I didn't get into any deep humor connection there. But when you get on the same, if you just march with people, you'll feel great afterwards, even if you don't talk to them. And so being in that crowded bar filled with energy, you know, participating along, it's a high and it recharges you. It's good for you. It's really, really good for you. Now is it is it a substitute for deep and meaningful conversation? No. But it's sure better than uh than nothing.
2: Yeah, I I'm not making um necessarily value judgment. I'm making a an ass- I'm making a an assessment about your long term happiness right so every day you wake up you have maybe what 16 hours to play with every mm-hmm. day yeah right yep. and of those 16 hours um a certain percentage of them are going to be productive meaning they move you along and then and the remainder are going to be unproductive and um Sports. I mean, the way my brother uses sports. I mean, he'll he'll watch the entire NFL card on a given Sunday, and probably a good bit of the the uh, college card on on a Saturday. You know, and you know, I understand people need to relax. I'm not trying to uh, deprive them that, but that's those are a lot of valuable hours. You know that you could be investing either in your uh, your career or your own personal knowledge that are just sort of squandered away in this sort of reverie of a dream about people you don't know playing a game that you don't really care about.
0: Uh, okay, and so what do you typically do on your Saturdays and Sundays? Uh,
2: my Saturdays are generally... Um, it's... It's errands. It's basically all the things I can't do during the week. Plus, I've been sort of nursing this little side project business, the book thing, along. Um, so uh, a, lot of, a lot of little things, a lot of, little, a lot of small trips, a lot of meaningless errands, a lot of not pointless. A lot of errands that need to be done, a lot of tasks that need to be accomplished, but nothing major. It's, it's, I'm not writing like great novels you know i'm taking care of business
0: right so if uh it, it, you're not you know you're not writing a great novel you're not you're not uh making dramatic uh profound you know meaningful lasting change to your life so it doesn't doesn't seem to me just on the surface that people would be better off running errands well, it's been this running way. errands instead of watching sports i mean i'm, I'm open well, either way
2: well what i'm saying is i'm sort of laying the foundation i'm i'm um i'm taking a very long view and a very broad-based view but i'm laying the foundations of a life i'd like to lead years in the coming years Right. So I'm, I'm putting brick by brick down and each individual brick is nothing of an importance in and of itself. It's nothing yeah. profound, but ultimately if you're going to build, if you're going to build a building, you're going to have to build a foundation and if, if you're going to build a foundation, you're going to have to lay a lot of meaningless bricks. And these types of bricks are the things that people postpone um in lieu of watching sports.
0: Yeah, that, that rings true. On the other hand, you're building a foundation and, and the projects that you're talking about are really only accessible to people with an IQ above 115. Your, your average person with a 100 IQ is not capable of building some awesome foundation. Well,
2: yeah, you might be right. You might be right. But let me tell you, I'll tell you an experience I had um probably like 15 years ago. So um I have family in Southern California, Orange County. And it was about a Sunday because it was an NFL day. And I went, so my brother, who's a very big football, my brother was there, he's a big football fan. So you go to this football, this bar, right? And in this bar, there's a dozen or so television screens. And each screen has a different NFL game going on. And they're all kind of just blaring down at you in this sort of cacophony of, football action just descending on you from all directions, you know? And everyone was just, you know, I looked around and everyone was just kind of slack jawed looking up at one of these screens and it was just thoroughly antisocial. So I, I don't see the human connection that you're actually talking about here. So yes, I can see the world cup. It comes around once in a while. It's, it's, it's sort of like a meteor. I can see sort of rallying around it every ever so often but that's not the way sports happens in america it's like a weekly ritual of emptiness
0: yeah but most of those people there didn't go there on their own they went there with friends
2: true but it wasn't like there was a lot of raucous conversation going on at the tables just a lot of people in front of beers staring up at screens
0: right with their friends and there would have been conversation prior to getting to the bar probably after getting to the bar uh, it's it's a foundation for for other forms of connection. So, for example, if if you've got a bad toothache and there's a solution to your toothache, but in in three months you know your toothache returns, did that did that temporary solution to your toothache that didn't didn't cost you much, you know, did it do you any harm? No, it provided a substantial service, even though you'll need to refill with whatever you did to deaden the toothache and so most people most men in particular suffer from a lack of human connection and so hanging out with friends watching a game should recharge someone now is it the permanent solution no
2: well why not just hanging out with friends without a game why is it that because men
0: don't do that men have to have a purpose to get together how often do men get together just to talk to a friend
2: well, I propose prior to television, I think they would get together and play
0: cards. Okay, but we're now in yeah, we're now in twenty twenty two. So men, generally speaking, don't get together without some purpose, without some activity.
2: Fair enough.
0: But that's that doesn't that
2: doesn't mean the sports add the value, right? It means the occasion for gathering which provides the value. Right, but and
0: sports is the number one thing that brings, particularly men, together. It's the number one shared activity in the world. There's nothing else that comes close.
2: Yeah, I, believe me, I'm not anti-sport. Uh, I'm just saying that I, I think it's a distant cousin of true socializing, rather than true socializing, which I'm I'm very much in favor of.
3: And, and so often, if that's
2: all we're left with, if that's what mm-hmm. we're left with, you know, that's what we're left with and you know, that's what we'll, that's what we'll have. But um like you know, I was part of a regular card game when I lived in Boston and that was so much fun, Luke. Like it was really a lot of fun and some of the best like socializing I I, I never really had. And there was so many characters and and stories that were told and It was so infinitely more rewarding than just kind of watching sports in this kind of slack jawed, passive way.
0: Well, how much time have you spent watching sports with friends?
2: Um, Recently, I
0: mean, friends or family, because it's pretty rare that you watch sports with friends or family, and there's no there's no substantive discussion. Usually they go hand in hand. The more time you spend with people, the more likely you are to have substantial discussion. It, it's hard to just meet up with people solely for substantial discussion. Uh, there's there's the rare, rare type of friendship that that, that happens. But generally speaking, uh, the time you spend, the more time you spend with someone, the more likely you are to have substantial discussion.
2: That's true. Um so it's been a while since I, I used to watch a lot of tennis, like I said. When I lived in Boston, I watched a lot of baseball for a while, and I quickly got sick of it. Wait, wait, with um,
0: friends. We're talking about with friends or family. Um,
2: um,
0: so when I would watch sports with, with friends, uh, we, we would, sometimes we'd talk about the Bible, sometimes we'd talk about politics, Sometimes we talk about what's going on in our life. Sometimes we talk about business or education or dating. Uh, All sorts of other topics would come up in the process of watching sports. So have you not found that? Or is your experience of getting together with a friend or a family member to watch sports that that, uh, it never leads or rarely leads to substantial discussion?
2: Yeah, I mean, I haven't done it in years now because I have, like i've replaced I've replaced watching sports with live streams, yeah.
3: You know? yeah
2: and um which is to me i think a better i think it's better than sports
4: um,
3: yeah i I agree with that um, uh,
2: I guess I've seen so many people so consumed with sports, and this is especially true in Boston, where it's really the only thing going on. People seem to be really one-dimensional. You know, and if people don't—if that's all you can talk about is sports, right, you're Obviously,
0: uh, if if all mm-hmm. someone can talk about is God, there's there's something wrong. If all someone can talk mm-hmm. about is politics, there's there's something wrong. So obviously, it's just a—it should just be a supplement. But when when a political movement such as the alt right, you know, heaps contempt upon sport ball, I think right, you're heaping contempt on the possibility of connecting with billions of people, right? You are turning off the easiest way to connect with with other people. Uh, So obviously you can overdo anything. You can overdo Mm. God. You can overdo religion. You can overdo drinking water. You can overdo exercise. You can certainly Mm. overdo sports. But if you want to easily connect with your fellow man, it seems like a moderate intake of sports, maybe 10 minutes a day, would be in most men's best interest.
1: Fair enough. Yeah, I don't disagree. I don't disagree.
2: Um, but I, I would like to, um, I guess there's active entertainment and passive entertainment. I think ultimately watching sports is a passive entertainment. And I think there's just way too many passive entertainments. I think people are more enriched by active entertainments. But accurately it's I mean things doing something in the real world becoming okay. better at something
0: so I had to learn social skills. I went to a sports bar approximately nine months ago for the first time in maybe thirty years. I had to suddenly brush up on a whole new set of social skills i, I wasn't aware of what what's the etiquette, and I you know started talking to strangers i you know made connections i it was awkward for me because I haven't spent time in, this, in a in a bar for approximately 30 years. And then I just went to a sports bar this morning. Uh, there's a whole different way of ordering coffee here. They don't sell coffee in a bar. So there are a whole bunch of social skills that I had to learn and a whole bunch of social challenges that I had to learn by going to a sports bar. It was a highly active and uh, mildly nerve-wracking experience for me both times
2: well i i saw that video luke this morning and you looked like a fish out of water you totally were not in your element you know yes um and it really looked as somebody it really it just became clear just through your your body language that this was you know, this wasn't your natural habitat you were um you were a ficus among eucalyptus, Luke. You, you, were, <laughs> you weren't comfortable, but you wanted to be comfortable. Same yes,
0: time. that's exactly <laughs> right. That's a, an excellent read. I was, I was not comfortable. I wanted to be comfortable. I put myself in a situation that is not natural to me. I don't naturally spend time in pubs. I, was, I had trouble ordering a coffee. I twice took someone else's coffee when they they you know, brought the coffee over and the other person had to bail me out uh it was like i had someone come up to me like security saying you know what are you doing when i was live streaming um yeah. it, it was it, it was an awkward and challenging experience but then that, that like that's a that's a really good thing to, to put yourself in awkward social situations and learn new skills
2: so how long did you last in that
0: i i the whole game
2: you made the whole game. Yeah, <laughs> two, two hours. To go.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, I um, I used to go to to bars and watch sports and do all that stuff, you know, and I was just out and about today on one of my errands. I walked past, I walked past a bar. It was just sort of early; they were just sort of just kind of opening up. And I looked inside, and I thought, "Ah, oh, maybe World Cup's on. Maybe I'll go in and maybe I'll watch and." And then I just looked, and the environment just seemed so like repulsive to me that I, it, I couldn't do it. I had no desire to do it. Whereas years ago, I would have just jumped right in and thought it would be the perfect thing to do. So I don't know. Um,
0: so yeah, there's so, a very,
2: there's a very dark energy in bars, Luke. It you depends. Know,
0: to... It depends on the bar, but yeah, the the energy in. I noticed the energy in American bars is much darker than the energy in, a, in Australian bars. Like people get, seem to go to American bars and get absolutely blessed.
2: Yeah. And it, I think it's probably more solitary in America than it is in Australia. Yeah. Because a, a lot of people will just kind of buy a, a, a beer and just kind of stare off into the distance and not really engage and not appear like they want to engage. Whereas I guess Oz is different.
0: Yeah, it wouldn't it's, surprise it's, me
2: if odds is different.
0: Yeah, it's somewhat different because there's just, you know, higher quality of life. There's not nearly as much reason to be afraid or on edge. If you drop your wallet, you know, the odds are high, very high that someone would return it to you. You don't have to be on edge. I mean, there are like six coppers around. So mm. I think it's, it's usually illegal to be serving beer at 6am in in Sydney on a Sunday morning, but they, Mm -hmm. they loosen the the rules for for the world cup. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, yeah, it is, it is much more of a kind of a family communal, you know, much more socially acceptable, uh, like families go to pubs and, you know, order a meal. Mm. Uh,
2: yeah, I was shocked. I mean, I, I know, like in Ireland, I guess that's a big part of the culture. Like, it's perfectly acceptable to bring your kids to a bar. And it's certainly not the case here. Um, well, people definitely look askance at you if you do. Um, but it's also like, you know, in a more cohesive society like Australia, where you have these special occasions, you can bend the rules, right? Whereas in America, I think you can't because it has to be much more by the book because it's, everything is so law-governed. Whereas, I know, am I right or wrong? Like, there's yeah. a way to bend yeah. the rules yeah. when there's because a lot of uh,
0: trust. America is much more litigious and it's yeah. an individual society where almost every interaction has to be negotiated, where in a more corporate society... Uh, you don't have to negotiate interactions because most things go without saying.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: There's a there's, there's a bar. That I think the number one sports bar in Sydney is called Cheers. Oh yeah, Did based on the, the the TV show, which is just an excellent show, and uh, yeah, you can pretty much twenty four seven get get any sport you want there. Well, Fantastic. yeah, you know Chinatown.
2: Um, that was a, you know, that bar is theoretically based in Boston. It's, it's you know, and fictionally based in Boston. And there is, is the actual Cheers bar in Boston. And it was a tourist destination um, for people traveling to Boston. But locals eschewed it. It was seen as very, very gay to go to the Cheers bar.
1: And uh, how much time do you spend in bars?
2: Recently or, or cumulatively in my
1: life?
0: In, in the past year? Zero. And how much time do you spend dressed in women's clothing in bars?
2: Well, by definition, zero, because I haven't gone to bars. But you no, know, I've never dressed in women's clothing. It seems very uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> and and what, do you, what do you make of uh, Kanye West and his, uh, <sighs> his skepticism?
3: <laughs>
2: so oh, this, this is a total onion of insanity, so where do you begin like um who's calling the shots in this situation like are you aware of all of the different conspiracy theories that are out there, and like you know, Milo is trying to get back at Trump, so he invited Kanye, who invited Nick and then Nick. Because uh it would be the excuse for uh who's the new speaker of the house? Oh no.
0: Likely it'll be Kevin McCarthy.
2: Yeah, McCarthy would have to disavow Trump and give the nod to DeSantis. I mean, the layers of insanity are completely inscrutable. Um, Kanye is obviously he's even more unstable than I thought he was going into this. I mean, once he appears on Alex Jones dressed in a hood, I mean this guy is borderline. He, he's he's on the precipice of sanity, as
0: far as I'm concerned. I mean,
2: well, what, what would it take for you to appear on the hood with Alex Jones? Uh, ten
0: thousand dollars.
2: You you do it for two grand, ten. but not nine. Ten, ten. is your maximum no, minimum, ten, right? Ten, ten absolute ten. minimum. Nine, your dignity is just more important.
0: Yes, like I shaved off my my beard for. Five hundred dollars cash and a loan of several thousand uh, six, eight thousand dollars.
2: So someone is this true? Yeah. You did this? Yeah. Who I, offered I, you money? Who would offer you money to shave off your beard?
3: Uh family.
2: Oh your family did, oh they were trying to get you to straighten up and fly right.
0: Yeah. And I I, I oh. was moving. I needed to move and get a new apartment, so I needed first and first and last month uh, rent and uh i I was, didn't really have it, so I really needed it
2: so the beard was a symbol of your uh, rebelliousness that that, that 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 you needed to uh, get rid of for them to take you
0: seriously. no my beard to was, money to- no, 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 my beard was a symbol that I no longer write on the porn industry so after uh. so now after I quit writing on the porn industry <sighs> towards the end of two thousand and seven. I read an article on the role of the beard in Judaism. I thought, ah, I'm going to grow a beard. This is like, this is the the Jewishly, seriously,
1: serious way to go.
2: But shaving it off meant you would no longer write about porn?
0: No. So three years later, everyone knew Mm. I no longer wrote about the porn industry. It wasn't as necessary that uh, I I make a statement. Okay.
2: I'm sorry. I must have missed a beat here because your family wanted you to remove the beard, correct?
0: Yes. And so after having a beard for three years, I shaved it off. Mm. in exchange for money that I needed.
2: I know, but so the money, why would they pay you money to shave your beard?
0: They just wanted to help me out. They realized I was in a tough time, but they, I was, I was starting my Alexander Technique practice and they thought that uh, it would, it would be better for my Alexander Technique practice to shave my beard.
2: Oh, okay. All right. So, okay. So by doing that, you demonstrated to your family that you were serious about getting your financial house in order and that you were a sound investment. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's it's a complicated life you've led, Luke. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I got to tell you, Luke, I've been listening to this guy, Matthew Cox, uh, I've sent links to you here and there. I don't think you've read them, but each one is more like spellbinding than next. It's really interesting content. And this is a guy that's was, he like ripped off Bank of America for like 50 million bucks mm-hmm. and then was sentenced to 26 years in prison. And then he ultimately got out for, I think after 13 years. And this guy's incredibly high IQ. He's not your average criminal, right? He's just, he's a fraudster and he he admits this full on, you know, he's completely come to terms with what he's done and now he's just sort of processing it and then he's just sort of bringing the message of fraud and prison and all of these unseemly things that we don't really normally deal with or know about and he's been through, and he sort of like translates this experience to normies, you know,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and like, oh, it is so interesting, and there is like there's these parallels to the alt right like um but he's got like like okay, so you know we we talk about like high i q and, you know, people with higher IQ tend to not commit crime. Like there's a sort of one-to-one correspondence between IQ and law-abidingness, right? And then on average, that's true, right? The more dumb you are, the more likely you are to be in prison. The more intelligent you are, the more likely you are to avoid prison, correct? Yeah. But we're dealing... But there are exceptions to this rule, right? And so a lot of fraudsters are incredibly high IQ, you know, they've sort of managed to pick the lock of the system and explain how they've picked the lock. And it's, to me, I find like it's just really captivating content and I'm wondering if it's like dangerous to even listen to this content.
0: Uh, Well, I think there's an easy answer to that. For some people it is dangerous and for most people it's not dangerous. True, but that's like uh reading Mein Kampf. For 99.9% <laughs> of people, reading Mein Kampf is not going to do them any harm.
1: Mm. Is that fair? That's yeah, that's fair, but I guess you
2: wouldn't do anything, you wouldn't act on anything until the idea to act on it. Till the idea first bloomed in your mind, you know?
0: Right, but it would only bloom in the minds of certain people.
2: I disagree. I think it would bloom in everyone's mind, but not everyone would have the wisdom to uh, evaluate the consequences of acting on the idea.
0: So what percentage of people do you think would face even a minimal amount of, of peril of uh you know imitating these these criminal ways if they start watching videos on Matthew Cox. So I would say 1%. A few other I would say
2: I would say um I like like you'd like to say I think it's the situation's the boss. Right? Yes. Normally You and I, you know, most people with you know an income and connections and family, and they wouldn't act on these ideas for fear of all of the pain and disruption it would cause to them. But let's say your back's against the wall. You know, the cards you're dealt are led to, and you're you're um, you're facing foreclosure or eviction, and suddenly crime seems like the only way out right yeah are you sure you're you're strong enough to
1: resist that urge we don't know until we're tested Luke. yeah and so i don't know
2: I, I that's why i find this so interesting i find this this guy's topic so interesting like, It's like a lot of these people don't realize they're embarking on a life of crime when they just do one little crime. But usually what happens is there's the spiral that kicks in. Right. And then they think the way that they can reverse the spiral is to do yet another crime to right the wrongs of the previous crimes and like get back to even, you know, do you see what I'm saying? Like, and, and, like, take the example of um, Sam Bankman-Fried. It's perfectly possible that, you know, I have, and I have no idea what exactly happened, but people start chasing losses, right? And then they lose again, and then they have to chase even still more losses. And then the thing spirals out of control. So what started as a game turned it out, you know, in the end could, like, spiral into a wholesale crime or a wholesale series of crimes. Um, So this is what I think about when I'm hearing these guys talk about their lives of crime and their stints in prison and how one thing led to another. Um, I guess uh, I just find this more interesting than most people.
0: (laughs) It is interesting. It's, I mean, you could read the novel crime and punishment yeah which, which there are many great novels on this theme, or you can watch watch videos. I mean true crime is about as addictive as pornography for many people, particularly women like for women, they usually use you know true crime in the same way that men use pornography. it just meets some some visceral need on the other hand, I think there is a really healthy way of of harnessing this to Try to catch murderers. So there are amateur clubs that, that try to solve murders, and they have solved a lot of murders. So I can't think of anything more uplifting and valuable. But for most people, their participation in true crime is just pure titillation and you know, voyeurism. But there are healthy, you know, there are healthy forms of uh, true crime, be it books or videos, and then there are voyeuristic and and more shallow forms of true crime
2: yeah yeah i can see that um you know i I think about those times with the guys that would play cards with in boston and just how interesting they were you know they were they were they just seemed to want more
1: from life and can you miss it Okay. Somehow
0: we've uh, we've lost uh, Elliot Blatt there, so maybe maybe he will come back. Uh, meanwhile, okay. So even if Sel mentally ill, so I, I don't think Kanye is one hundred percent at his, his mental peak, but his his rants against Jews I think reflect primarily a very common anti-white instinctive loathing on the large on on a segment of the of the black community. I think. Most of Kanye's and most of black, quote unquote, anti-Semitism is really anti whiteism it And for people of color, I think, generally speaking, Jews are regarded as the quintessential whites. They're not regarded as non-white. They're not regarded as a separate group from white people. So I think what's really driving Kanye is fear and loathing of middlemen, fear and loathing of his, his managers. And uh, Elliot, you're back.
2: Sorry, Luke. I, I clicked a tab, and you are the tab. I don't have I my think... glasses, so uh, I was rambling and babbling.
1: So anyway, okay.
0: okay. Um, uh, so, so, so- do, you, do you think you're using true crime in, in a voyeuristic and uh, as, as cheap thrills?
2: Well, I guess it's I guess it's feeding the same sort of um, it's feeding the same vein that sort of
1: alt right drama used to feed. Yeah.
2: You know, like, um, you know, the days of 2017, 18, 19, that, that alt right was like just such captivating content. Yeah. Now it seems to have fizzled to a great deal since Richard's gone clean. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's amazing, like, the YouTube algorithm just. Knew what I wanted. It served up something. It had to take its place. (laughs) Oh boy! So anyway, I I had a bunch of stories to tell you. Okay, go ahead. But but I mean, I don't know. I don't want to like.
1: Go ahead. Tell me a story. Okay.
2: All right. So there is something here. So I'm going to get to a point, but it's going to take a while to get to it. Right. And. So, uh, forgive me. If this is if this story rambles a little bit too much, but it's it is leading somewhere, but it's going to seem like it's not leading anywhere. So, just if I could put that caveat out. So, I'm I'm asking you to indulge my <coughs> circumlocutory um rambling style here. But, um, so like a couple weeks ago. I, um, the gas, the check engine light came on in my car.
1: And it,
2: to me, when that happened, it was like, a, like a bolt of lightning just erupted out of the dashboard, just shot me in the heart. You know, it was so traumatic when this happened. Like, I knew that this... This could very easily be like a one to two thousand dollar repair. Right. Yeah. And I was just so not in the mood for that. And I'm like, and like, so I just kept like I I, I started going through the five stages of grief, thinking maybe it's a mistake, you know, and it's I was bargaining and think, maybe tomorrow I'll turn the car on and then the light will be off. And you know, I'm going through all these stages, right? thinking that I just, this type of bullshit can't happen to me right now. I'm not ready for this at this moment. I I just want to pawn this off to like six months from now. I think I'll be better suited to deal with this. So anyway, so days go by, and like a week goes by, then it's clear to me that the light's not going off and that there could be a problem and I need to take it to a shop. And... And so I finally, I, I stirred up the resolve and I made an appointment at this. So I, I drove to his dealership and I said, okay, I got the engine light on. And this, this guy comes out and he's like a, he's like a little Kanye guy and he's got like an earring and a do-rag. And I'm like, yo man, like there's an engine light in my car. And he's like, I don't know, bro. It could be like 300, 600 bucks just to look at it, just to look at the light, you know, Never mind the repair, just to do the diagnosis. And I'm like, Oh God, like that dread that came over me, you know? And so I back out of there. I'm like, fuck this. I'm not going to this guy. And then I remembered, you know, some guy had given me a a, a referral to this other guy, a Chinese guy, and told me this was the guy to go because he was honest. know and he did good work and he uh he um he was someone to be trusted so that's what i did i made an appointment with that guy but then i'd forgotten about the appointment and so so the morning of the appointment came around and i went out to my car because i'd forgot something in my car so i still have my i'm just wearing like this ratty sweater and some pajama bottoms you know, I've just I run out to the car just for what I thought was going to be a minute or two and just to get something in and then come back in. And then while I'm at the car, I remember that I have the appointment that I have to get to the appointment. And so I uh, I just haul ass and like whatever I'm wearing, I just get to the appointment in time. And I'm like, OK, all right, here's the situation. Here's the situation. The, the light come on. Uh, could you just tell me how bad it is? And. Uh,
0: I'll, I'll be right, you know,
2: I'll be right back. So while I'm going there, while I'm driving downtown, all these omens start peering, you know, traffic jams. There was this one particular traffic jam where there is this woman like on a gurney and the ambulance was there and lifting her into the ambulance. And I'm seeing this and like, there's this feeling of doom that's combing over me. Cause it's like, why else would I be seeing all of these, Terrible scenes on the way to the traffic to the to the mechanic. Like this is all the omens are pointing in a very negative direction. So I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be 2,000. This is going to be a huge repair. This is like a total intro replacement. You know, I'm going through these these cycles of grief while driving, like thinking that I like there's been a lump found, you know, and a lump in my lungs, and I'm going to need surgery. I I'm I'm just doom and gloom is just overtaking me as I'm driving. So. <laughs> I finally get to the mechanic and I say, okay, here you go. Uh could you check the engine light and just tell me what's going on? He says, sure, man. Uh it's about 10 a.m. at this point. He says, I'll call you around noon. So, all right, fair enough. And so I gotta kill some time, right? I got two this is so by the way, the the uh the the, the garage is on 10th street, which is also where Twitter, the Twitter headquarters are, and you know how Elon's been on the news? Yes, yes. So I'm thinking, ah, I've seen this in a dream. I'm going to run into Elon Musk, and then I'm going to – I have this little idea that I want to pitch to Elon Musk, and I'm like, ah, this is perfect. I dread this situation, and I'm going to run into Elon Musk, and I'm going to pitch him my idea, and then he's going to give me lots of money to implement this idea. And this whole thing is unfolding. This is all God's plan, right? So this is the alternate version of the, uh, uh, this is the opposite of the doom and gloom scenario. This is like the rosy, like, you know, um, unbelievably good fortune story that's going to unfold. So I'm roaming around 10th Street, going to various places. So I've got like a gift certificate to Bed Bath & Beyond, which has been in my pocket for 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 years, for like six months, I'm like, well, maybe I'll just go buy something at Bed Bath & Beyond with my gift certificate, so I do that, I buy some sheets, and some some other crap, and, you know, it's the only time I could, like, stomach Bed Bath & Beyond, and I'm walking around, and I'm deliberately taking as much time as possible, because I'm literally, like, just telling time for two hours, you know, and so I'm ambling around, I buy some grapefruit juice at Trader Joe's, I'm just It's been so long since I've had like so much free time to just piss away in this manner, but I was sort of excused because my hands were tied. The car was in the shop. It was like this little Ferris Bueller's Day Off type of situation that I got midweek, which I don't normally get. So I'm sort of savoring this opportunity at the same time dreading knowing at any time the guillotine is going to fall and this huge auto repair is going to happen. And I'm going to be fucking distraught because it's going to cost lots of money. And, you know, at the same time, I might run into Elon Musk because why else would I be on 10th street roaming around if not to run into Elon Musk? So it's like this weird slurry of ideas that are just going on in my head, you know, and it's endless and totally. And I, so this just drags on for like two hours and he doesn't call and there's a third hour. So finally it's 1 PM and I walk by the shop and it's all locked up. And I'm like, where the hell is this guy? So I'm like, the only reason he's locked up is because he's going to buy this expensive part, you know? And so this added to the drama. I was like, Oh, it's going to be even more expensive than that. Right. And so I go to this cafe and I'm like, all right, whatever fate has, whatever fate has in store for me, I'm willing to accept. I'm going to, you know, God, it's 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 in God's hands at this point, right? Yes. So I, I drink my little chai tea, and then finally I drink out and I go back to the garage. And the des- the, the shop is open, and he's there, and I walk in. And I say, "Well, uh, so uh, what's what's the news, my dude? How, how bad is it?" He says, oh, no big deal, dude. Uh, some guy didn't put the hose all the way in. There's no repair needed. Uh, it's nothing wrong.
1: <laughs> Zero wrong. So, and I look at I'm so
2: happy right now, right? Yeah. I'm, like, ecstatic at this point, yeah. because I've been dreading this moment for, like, three hours, and suddenly I learned the good news. There's nothing. There's no, it cost me literally nothing, right?
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: then I get in the car, and I'm saying, you gotta let me pay you something you gotta let me just can I give you fifty dollars? no, he's one of these guys, like real old school, you know, wow, no, man, you know he couldn't I, I multiple times I offered to pay him just for the time of looking at it, which he did justly deserve, you know, yeah, and he wouldn't accept any money. This is like how often does that happen? you know somebody of this character so obviously this is the only guy i'm ever going to take my car to for the rest of my life period yeah. right yeah but so so there's many things here it's like a why does my mind start racing like this right and b why is it so unreasonable for me to expect like honest treatment you know i'm still trying to process this whole day um
0: Okay, so you, let's, you... yeah, let's let's break it down. So I think both you and you and I operate with with chronic levels of excess anxiety. Do you, do you think that's accurate?
2: I think so. I think there's no other other explanation. There's no other explanation.
0: And I, I think we operate with chronic levels of anxiety because we haven't we haven't quite found our path. There is still. You know, there's still a lot of, right. We we just haven't, haven't found, haven't fully found the the path and yeah, we we both operate with excess anxiety and, and we'll be better off if we can moderate it a bit. Uh, I I think that's the, the, the main upshot. And and so I don't think it's about being in San Francisco or being in a big city or being in America versus Australia, though I think that probably plays an element. So I haven't felt any fear, of, of which I'm aware, of, of crime since I've been in Sydney, for example. So that that level of anxiety is not here. Australia is a more cooperative. It's just a, a nicer place, low, low crime levels. Uh, so, So... Yeah, I think I think what we're talking about here is primarily about well-worn neural pathways for each of us that uh, we would benefit from rewiring. I think that's the primary thing that's going on. What do you think?
2: I, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I, you know, no, I, I like to ent- entertain the story that well, I've done this rewiring. You know, I've been working on this for so long. You know. Why why is there never any sort of endpoint? Like even on a long road journey, you eventually get to where you're going. Like it's a 50, 15 hour flight to Australia, yes, it's long. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but you ultimately do get to Australia, right? Yeah. So why is it that the destination never just quite seems to arrive?
0: Uh because there's probably important work that we're not doing and we're probably Uh, exaggerating to ourselves the
1: effectiveness of the work that we are doing.
2: Yeah. Oh, that was the other thing I want to mention. So also on my feed, I've been getting these videos about NDEs, near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. Have you ever watched any of
1: that content? No. Okay.
2: I just started. I never used to either until recently. And then, once you watch one, you get a bunch of the algorithm, you know. So, it's about all of these people that, in various circumstances, have basically died and then come back, you know. And they could have died for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, rarely more than 20 minutes. But they come back and then they tell the tale of what their experience was. So, they've all been clinically dead, right? And they explained the process of what it was like to die and then to come back, right? So, um, and these people are such varied walks of life. You know, you, you you hear about stories like this and you always think of like this, you know, this California woman, she's like 57, she wears a muumuu and she's got a scarf, you know. It wasn't like that at all. These are like people from very like different walks of life, men and women, old and young, um, you know, scientists, mechanics. You know, the entire gamut of human experience is sort of represented in, in these people that have had these things. And all of the stories are very different, but there's always these same themes, right? And the fundamental conclusion that they, the fundamental teaching, the fundamental. Um, Uh, lesson that they've learned that they bring back is that they
1: regret not having treated people better
3: Mm -hmm. you know
2: Mm -hmm. and that their fundamental task and mission was to treat people better than they've treated people in the past and that all the other stuff was all very secondary but Apart from that, there's also these other things that are interesting, like, they, like the different phases of the experience, like it's this dark uh, experience that finally gives way to this light experience. And then they meet beings who have words for them, but they're not words. There's just sort of telepathic communication and so forth. Anyway, it's just, you know, I didn't expect myself. So anyway, I watched a bunch of these, you know, and I found these things to be really uplifting, ultimately as um in a way i didn't expect
0: yeah yeah i i haven't consumed this material deliberately but when i have stumbled upon it uh it, it does does have an uplifting effect it's it it clarifies what's important in life
2: yeah yeah um and, You know at the same time, I've been wanting to like share this with other people, but I feel like it sort of crosses a line that uh it's not really it's not considered good news i don't think people i don't think very many people will be open to this right I don't think it's in good taste or do you
0: right you have to you have to pick your person pick the the situation it's it's not it's not uh a normal conversation starter.
2: Yeah. But at the same time, you know, like, I, I feel like I have just so much a lighter approach to life. You know, I feel like um I feel like it's altered my worldview in a very positive way. And I feel like I want to share that with people. So even if it's not socially acceptable, I feel like maybe it is still the best thing to do.
0: So what do you think would happen if you directed conversation in in this direction when it's not socially acceptable?
2: Uh, I would probably be, uh, I think there'd be a range of reactions. One to being very, some people would find it very captivating and interesting and they'd be grateful for it. Others would be very discomforted and try to, exit the situation as quickly as possible. And then a small student would be probably angry or snippy with me for having done this. I think I think there's a range of responses. But I think the risk of, I, I think it would, it would put me in sort of the crazy bucket for sure. I think a lot of people would recategorize me if, if they haven't already categorized
3: me as being insane.
2: I think I would lose friends. But were they friends in the beginning, in the first place?
0: So, I, I mean, this is a this is type of thinking I'm very familiar with, because people who are all about Jesus, or all about Torah, or all about communism, uh, anyone with a cause thinks pretty much identically to the way you just described.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it, it's in the zone of like... Uh, proselytizing or evangelizing. Yeah, right? saying
0: everyone is fodder for Christ or fodder for Torah or fodder for communism or fodder for the profundity of the near-death experience.
2: Right, right, right. And, you know, I haven't done this. I mean, you're the only one I've told, right, in our little community yeah. here. Um...
3: um
2: I don't know, I, I, think, I think a lot of people are suffering unduly from not having this information or not even for cont- having not even contemplated, because ultimately we do have to contemplate our own mortality, whether we like it or not. But I think a lot of what people do just to tie things together, they put these questions deep in the, in the closet, and then they replace it with sports as a diversion, just to bring us back. What do you think about that?
0: Right. I think that's probably true. But I think if you genuinely want to connect with people, that needs to come first, not any particular topic that you're burning to share, that you're burning to improve people on. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care.
1: Right. But.
2: The bonding is as you would describe it. I'm going to use it in air quotes uh, or scare quotes. Is it air quotes or scare quotes? Air quotes. Okay. Um, so I've heard people say scare quotes and I am never sure. Anyway, by the way, a lot of YouTubers, well, popular YouTubers make some very fundamental grammar mistakes. Are you aware of this?
0: I don't pay a lot of attention to it, but I would assume it's, it's true. Anytime you speak, off the cuff you you're gonna make uh grandma mistakes,
2: yeah, but there's little there's like there's like nitpicking mistakes, and then there's just howler mistakes, but anyway, not to divert, okay um but anyway, here's the thing, like talking about these matters, I guess
1: put it this way if you're somebody that can be comfortable or if you're
2: somebody that you can make comfortable while discussing something as disconcerting as a dear death experience, right? I think in the long run, people will see you as, if you're something, because that's going to, that topic's going to bring up a lot of anxiety. But if your presence is such that you can sort of quell that anxiety just by your presence and allow people to think, you know, to think and speak openly about it, I think you're doing them a a real service. I think that's a real connection versus a sort of superficial connection, which is talking about sports.
0: Yeah, but they have to be in a place where they're they're looking for that. If you're just going to override what what people want and instead give them what you believe is good for them, generally speaking, that's going to be a negative. You're going to be hurting people and hurting yourself. So what you're talking about is is an idealistic path that inevitably leads to both antisocial results and social isolation for you.
1: Uh, you're not wrong. You're not wrong.
2: Um, I, I I guess but a relationship or a conversation is a two way street and you need to be getting something out of it too. Right.
0: And And so you should have people in your life with whom you can discuss near death experiences. Yes. And and sometimes those connections will begin with superficial connections about the weather or sports or some joke on late night TV. Right. Deep, deep uh, connections don't necessarily begin with, with deep conversations. They begin with superficial, and then you move. Then you move. That's If, you, if you're if you a droid socially, that, that's what happens. You don't just jump into near-death experience conversations. You start with sports, and then you share a little something from your life, and then the other person shares something from his life, and then you start heading towards deeper and deeper territory. So, for example, I was... Hiking by Watson's Bay, absolutely gorgeous part of the Sydney Harbour. And I said to a complete stranger, "You know what? An amazing view." And he, noticing all my electronic equipment, said, "Yes, it is an amazing view. Uh, it would it would make a great photograph." And then within uh, two minutes, I found out that he was a psychiatrist. And then we started. Within five minutes, we were talking about our favourite books. And uh, 30 minutes later, he was demonstrating to me this uh, matrix therapy. He was in town for a month learning a new form of therapy. So we went deep after about five minutes of progressively deepening conversation. So the first minute was trivial. uh, Second minute was mildly personal. uh, Third, fourth, fifth minutes are leading towards depth. But I didn't start out asking him about near-death experiences. This is a complete stranger. So there needs to be a smooth transition, or you're going to be annoying people, and if you annoy people needlessly, that's hurting people, and you're going to be feeling like crap yourself. So there needs to be a smooth progression from the superficial to the personal to the to the things that are on your heart.
2: Yeah, okay. But in one, I'm not like... I'm raising the question with you of whether or not to even bring the topic up at all ever, right? Not, should I lead with it and only want to talk about it, right?
1: Um, it's,
2: is it verboten? Is the whole subject matter verboten?
0: No, everything is not time whether... and a place. There's, there's a time for everything uh, under heaven. Of course not. Of course not. Absolutely no way is you know it always verboten. But if you bring it up when people don't want to go there, you're hurting them and you're hurting yourself. So there, there yes. needs to be a smooth transition from the casual to the profound.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like if you're in a pub watching Argentina play Australia in the World Cup, probably not the time or the place to discuss near-death experiences.
1: Absolutely. I, absolutely right. Um okay. Understood. I, I I need to reflect on this, but I I do think um I
2: do think that's I don't know. Uh, to me it's a conversation that brings people towards reality, and by reality I don't necessarily mean, you know, spiritual reality i just mean about what's important and what's not what's transient and what's more permanent and, oh yeah
0: it's it's amazing i mean i love deep conversations i mean yeah. this is this is something i could definitely if, if we were hanging out uh or just talking on the phone this is definitely something that uh, i'd love to to talk about mm. and it's a quality it's a quality conversation topic
2: yeah. Yeah. I just didn't expect it to have like a positive effect on my psychology when it, it actually has. So I have to do some more thinking and contemplating it before I can think more or say yeah. more.
0: Yeah. And w- what effect did you find watching these videos on near death experience compared to watching videos on true crime? What effect did it have on you?
1: Um. Is there a difference? There's a difference. So I notice that I'm able to catch myself in my sort of default sarcastic mental
2: dialogue, right? Yeah. I'm always right there. The, sar- the sarcastic quip is always right there at the ready for me, right?
3: Yeah.
2: And it's sort of like a learned behavior for me to not deploy it to rather be um i sort of have to force myself to be cordial and not say something snide and sarcastic right and i don't go around you know using sarcasm with strangers at the same time i'm i'm slowly becoming aware of my own sarcasm and I'm finally seeing it as a bit unhealthy.
0: Yeah, as a distancing device. It distances yeah. you from other people and yeah. it isolates you, and it allows you to falsely feel superior to other people because they don't get your sarcasm.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I've basically grown up, and that's sort of been my chief weapon with my sarcasm, and like I've really had it for as long as I can remember. It's the only thing that. It's the only weapon I had any advantage with, you know? And it is that, it is the weapon and it it cuts both ways.
0: And it's powerful when you connect with people who are sincere,
1: right?
2: Well, it prevents me from being sincere personally. Mm -hmm. But what do you mean when you...
0: Well, I I meet people who are sincere, who who won't Mm -hmm. hang out long in the world of sarcasm. And that's refreshing. I mean, I, yeah. I was having conversations with people on, on Shabbos and most of it was joking and sarcastic and sometimes inappropriate, but there were times when he would ask me questions that were serious and he'd have to emphasize to me, I'm, I'm being serious here. I'm not joking <laughs> because mm. unless he made that emphasis, I was just taking everything as a joke. Yeah. And I've got a friend with whom there's probably a possibility of a deeper friendship But he always just treats me as a joke and he only relates to me in a joking, sarcastic way. And so Mm. we have missed out on a deeper friendship because, you know, I played a significant role in this, you know, as an immature, you know, jokester, somebody who likes to hang out in sarcasm land. I have, he doesn't talk to other people this way. He gets a certain vibe from me. And so he only speaks to me in a juvenile, sarcastic way
2: yes it's finally like once yeah and it's like sort of if you go through life you like you attract people who are yes. sarcastic yeah. right but then you're shocked and horrified when they use their sarcasm on you yeah. you
0: know particularly if you're not and, in the mood for it
2: yeah it can really take you back and it can really uh blow up some friendships you know if it's not um If you're not expecting it or if you use it harshly, because I've said some things that I've regretted, you know? Um, And so just tying it into Kanye and this whole drama, it seems like words do matter, you know, and they have consequences. Kanye's learning that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't see him as being on a a good uh, trajectory. The no. one, one that's going to get him wh- where he wants to go. Uh, what do you think, uh, by analysis, that this is this is being driven by this very common uh, perception that middlemen are unnecessary and he knows better the, the, the people that he's partnered with?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's probably a sentiment that all artists have. They just think because they're talented, they should be rich. And this whole business thing is ugly and disgusting. And if not, it's only because of them they're, they're not even richer. They don't understand how the real world works. They, li- they like to live in these idealistic, these ideal frames that just simply don't exist. So I have very, I used to have sympathy for that mindset. But then once I've gotten older and worked in the real world and you understand how business works at some level, I have almost no sympathy for it.
0: And do you make of Milo, he just strikes me as an opportunist.
2: Yeah, I I, I dare say demon. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm close to, I would almost use the demon language here. I think mm-hmm. he's deeply disturbed, deeply cynical, deeply Machiavellian, uh, deeply untrustworthy, I think. And like I said, I've I pointed this out in the chat before, but if you look at his face and you look at the way his eyes look, Right. If you compare the set of his eyes to those of the set of the eyes of serial killers and other serious criminals, you'll notice some commonalities. He's a deeply disturbed soul. And I don't know how this is all going to shake
0: out. I think someone's here.
2: Um, I might have to go, Luke.
0: Okay. Take care, my friend.
1: All right, bro. All right. Peace. Okay. So main topic, uh, we're
0: looking possibly at the end of the world. As we know it, we may be closer to that point than than in, in my lifetime. I was born in 1966, so this is uh, John Meersheimer recently. The 2022 Holberg debate: John Meersheimer and Carl built Ukraine, Russia, China, and the what West. Carl said
5: about the fact that we live in a very dangerous world today. I'd put a finer point on it and say that I think the world is likely to get more dangerous with the passage of time. And number two, I believe that the world that we are moving into is more dangerous than the Cold War was. And, of course, the Cold War was dangerous, but there's bigger trouble ahead. Now, the question is, why do I say that? I say that because you have to think about what the world looked like when World War II ended and how it's evolved over time. And you have to think about how the structure of
0: Okay, I just suddenly thought, reflecting on my discussion with, with Elliot. I guess I feel strongly, believe strongly on this topic that there needs to be a smooth transition from from the casual to, to the personal to ever greater layers of disclosure. It needs to be in synchrony with other people because I have shortchanged that throughout my life. I so love deep conversations that I've often just gone there very quickly, inappropriately, and it's annoyed people. It's made people feel uncomfortable. And it took a therapist telling me you know, when you annoy people, when you make people feel uncomfortable, when you offend people, you're hurting people. So I, I try to be smoother these days. So start out with the superficial and then a mild amount of self-disclosure, see if the other person's interested in self-disclosure. And so I, I was trying that this weekend, uh, went up to a stranger, started on a superficial level of conversation, the World Cup. He wasn't interested in the World Cup then moved to a second topic, and uh, then a little bit of disclosure myself. I said, I'm a, a tourist, I'm visiting Sydney, uh, got a little bit of his life story, so we had some reciprocal exchange, then we moved on to the topic of his profession, and and then I wasn't sure if I was connecting or annoying him or making him, him feel awkward. I wasn't sure how I was doing, but uh, towards the end of it, he said, oh, you know, will I see you here again? And so obviously I did make some sort of connection. Also, I did have a fantastic conversation for 90 minutes to two hours with a psychiatrist that I just met on a walk near, near Watson's Bay. And we went from the, the superficial to a mild amount of personal disclosure to more personal disclosure to within five five to eight minutes, we started having a deep conversation that I think was was thrilling to, to both of us. I remember when I was in when I was talking to one person and then an acquaintance came over and I started to introduce them, I was told that's very American of me. So I think uh, Americans perhaps d- do more like formal introductions. They, they already know each other, but I was thinking aback. but all my life I've kind of often jumped into the topic of conversation that I wanted to have. I've gone to the deep place or I have often just used people as squatter for whatever cause is moving me at the moment. And so I think I inherited this tendency from my father who like me tends to live in a, in a lived in a very cognitive abstract intellectual world much of the time. So like my father, I believe very strongly in things often changing those things quite frequently. And then I believe so strongly in things that I want to kind of ram it down people's throats that I want to bring it up at times where it's inappropriate. I just want to jump them with my you know favorite ideas. And I notice how this is, isolated me. It's made me feel awkward. It's made me feel unwanted. It has you know, damaged potential relationships and it's had a negative effect on other people. So in my old age, I'm thinking it's, it's very important to be smooth and pay far more attention to social
5: niceties and norms than I used to pay attention to. Of the world has changed because that tells you a great deal about the likelihood of conflict. When I was born in 1947, it was a bipolar world. There were two great powers in the system the United States, and the Soviet Union. When the Cold War ended in 1989, and certainly when the Soviet Union fell apart in December of 1991, we moved from a bipolar world to a unipolar world. Then around 2017, the structure of the system began to change, and we moved from unipolarity to multipolarity, a world where there are three great powers, the United States, China, and Russia. So if you think about it, in my lifetime, we went from bipolarity to unipolarity to multipolarity. Now, what this means is that in the multipolar world we're in now, we have what I would call two conflict dyads. In-
0: okay, what's the difference between cynicism and realism? So uh, cynicism is an overly negative view of, of the world, that uh, people are only out for themselves, politicians are only out for themselves, politicians only want more and more power, and realism re- recognizes that everybody's flawed, including me and, you know, including other people. So. It's uh Donnie Pauling. Donnie, long time, no talk. How's it going, man?
6: <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, things are pretty good.
0: Excellent. So uh what what's been going on with you? It's been I think six, nine months since we spoke last.
6: I mean I'm just driving a truck, so there's nothing really extraordinarily exciting about that. I keep up on current events, but um yeah, just driving a just driving a big semi truck all around the country. It's kind of it's kind of fun and but h-
0: how often does that allow you to have deeper conversations with people
6: uh you know not too often but um well i mean it, it depends See, i'm a i'm a team driver and my co-driver he's uh he's from mexico he he has a ph- uh, you know a, a master's degree in philosophy and was a teacher down there so we have some pretty decent conversations but you know with um since we drive teams, the truck's always moving. And, and when he's driving, then I can also get online and have some conversations on Twitter and stuff. And that's what kind of grabbed my attention today was, uh, you talking about, uh, you know, Kanye, cause I've been keeping up on that.
0: Right. So did, it, did you share any thoughts that you have with, with regard to Kanye. Uh,
6: so I'm, I'm Catholic now, but, um, I converted in 2014 and, and, before that i was a protestant uh, christian and and the thing that really i don't understand is how any person who claims to be a christian can be anti-semitic my dad's a pastor and all my life um, he's just fascinated with jews and, and and for me okay so for example one of the things I only know this by reading because in my personal experience, I never encountered any kind of anti-Semitism. But, um, you know, I've read that, you know, some Christians are saying, oh, Jews killed Christ. Okay. That makes no sense to me why they would be mad about that, because if they believed their own, you know, their own Bible, that was necessary. (laughs) So Jews like did jews are the re i mean if that was the case if jews kill christ that's the only reason you're able to have salvation <laughs> if you if you abide by christian belief so why on earth would you be mad at jews for making it possible for a non-jew to have salvation so i mean that uh, that's never made any sense to me at all so when kanye comes on comes on here it just makes me really lose a lot of respect for him because um that just seems like a logical deduction for me any person with half a brain can can see that uh, you know Christ's death was necessary unless you just don't believe your bible so who cares who killed christ christ had to die that was the whole point if you're a christian and you and you and you hold on to that belief So I don't know. My dad always has this huge respect for Jews. And um, my parents were very, very um, protective over us. We weren't allowed to go anywhere. Um, People could come visit us at our house and stay and, you know, friends and the like. But the one exception was if someone came to his church who was Jewish, You know, not necessarily that that's a good thing now, but he would just let us go. You know, he he had this enormous respect. So, you know, anyone who's listened to your show and heard me talk before knows I've been in prison. When I was in prison, I got to speak with an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, which is normal for a Christian. But I sent him a note and I said, you know, if I promise to never try to convince you that Christ is the Messiah, can I come to your weekly meetings? I didn't even know what they were called. And, uh, and he said, yeah, he says, you know, when I agreed to, to work with the prison system, I agreed, you know, one of the things is that you can't discriminate against anyone and you are perfectly welcome. So I would go there and I would talk to him. Well, my dad was very jealous because it's not often that you can discuss Torah with an Orthodox Jew. If you're a Christian, um, my dad almost—it's funny because he's a very proud man, and and he has good reason to be. He's a very good man, but it's like he has Jews way up on this pedestal. So I've known nothing else in my entire life, and so when anyone who's a Christian uh, um, starts spouting off anything anti-Jew, it just makes no sense to me because I've my dad being you know through going through seminary being a pastor. These are God's chosen people. They are to be respected. They're like, you know, the opposite of what Kanye is doing now. These are people that you put on a pedestal because the Bible, if you believe it to be true, which all Christians are supposed to do, says that through these people, the entire world is going to be blessed. So I don't know. I don't get it. I think that, I mean... Uh, maybe I'm very ignorant, but it, it seems to me that maybe this is just a North American or USA thing where Christians decide to hate because I've never. Yeah,
0: okay, why don't you push yourself and try to articulate why, from Kanye's perspective, it makes sense? So it, it's very easy to dismiss other people and their, their opinions as you know being absolutely nonsensical and completely incompatible with our own life experience. But why don't you push yourself and try to empathize and articulate what you think might be going on with Kanye so that from his perspective, what he's doing is being brave and telling the truth.
6: I mean, so so the only thing that Kanye claims that he is not being anti-Semitic, that he's just telling the truth, and that he's saying that Jews control everything. And he says that God loves everyone. Uh, so I understand that now. If he's being genuine, he's absolutely right. I mean, you, you know, Jews don't control everything, but they are definitely there are definitely a lot of Jews in in positions of power and control. And and I say, okay, well, you know, he doesn't necessarily, from what I've read, say that that's a good or bad thing. Um, I personally think it's a good thing. But, um, yeah, there are definitely a lot of Jews who are in positions of power. I don't know why that's controversial to say if it's just a fact. So I could see where, you know, if Kanye is trying to say that that's just, you know, a fact that he's sharing, I would say, okay, well, and, you know, what's the the point? Um, Kanye, Kanye... Also, I really do think is mentally ill and um, can't really help himself. He's kind of succeeded in, in spite of himself, and uh, it's kind of sad that people are holding what he says when he's on his little, you know, emotional breakdowns. It's kind of sad that they hold those against him and that he's done so much damage to his brand. Says a lot about cancel culture, which needs to end, of course. Um, and, and but I mean, think,
0: I, what do you think about Donald Trump meeting with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes? Does that say anything I you think about that, Trump?
6: I, I don't think it does. I think that what Trump says about that is absolutely true. He knows who Kanye is. He had no idea who Kanye brought with him and probably didn't know who the hell Nick Fuentes was. I mean, Nick Fuentes is important to himself, and of course to the to the enemies of Trump. But um, to Trump himself, he's an e- egotistical maniac who who doesn't really care to know, you know, who el- who else is moving in the world. So I I really do believe that he had no idea who this guy was. Um, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know who Nick Fuentes was until all of this. Crap came up, and I think that anyone who's being honest, the majority who don't know who the hell he is either. Um, so, I think that people are making way too much of that. You know, everybody knows knows who Kanye is, and even if he's in the middle of a, mid, uh, a mental breakdown, I don't see any problem having dinner with him. He's Kanye, you know, so does, you don't have to agree with him in order to have dinner with him. Yeah. I think anybody on the planet would have dinner with him just because of who he is. If if the guy shows up on Thanksgiving Day and wants to talk to you, you're going to be intrigued and say, let's hear what he has to say.
0: And what do you think of this Nick Fuentes character?
6: Well, I can only base it on what I've read since, and I'm very skeptical of of what's written in media. So, um, if he really is such a horrible person, like people are making him out to be, I don't understand what Kanye sees in him. I mean, I do believe that everybody has the right to say whatever they want. That's freedom of speech. Um, but so I don't believe in trying to. You know suppresses voice. It's just choosing whether or not you're going to listen to it. on, um, you know.
0: And,
3: and what but about this
0: character Milo Yiannopoulos? Do you have any thoughts on Milo?
6: You know, um, so so for Milo, Milo um, I've heard of him a whole lot, you know, more often than I have uh, of Nick Fuentes. Um. I think that, you know, he he talks a lot about feminism and Islam and things like that. And um, he, too, has the right to say anything he wants to say. I I really am very uh, against anyone trying to to censor views that they don't agree with. Um, That's not that's not scripture to me. I don't think, you know, Christian scripture I'm talking about which includes the New Testament but um I don't think that anyone needs to try to silence others just because they disbelieve or disagree um but anyway um and I and I'm really encouraged you know by what Elon has done so far with Twitter to allow all voices to be to be heard I think that's what we have to do you and I have the free will to block the, you know, the people that we don't want to hear from, but we don't have the right to say that they shouldn't be heard at all just because we don't like what they're saying. Yeah, that's I. I think that's what's what the problem is with our world.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree. Twitter's become a much freer, much more fun place since Elon. Yes, absolutely,
6: absolutely. And if you don't like what someone's saying, block them. You know, I got blocked a couple of times already since since he took over. I had an account that was after you know, I made it in 2008, and it was uh, it was permanently suspended just a few months before Elon bought Twitter, because I said that I don't understand how any person on the planet could defend an abortion. And, you know, I call them mental midgets, basically. (laughs) And that was the last straw. They suspended me. But, um, you know, since Elon took over, then my account was unsuspended. I got back on there. I said a few things. People have blocked me. Cool. That's what they get to do. That's what adults should do. They they shouldn't say that I don't, you know, that I need to be silenced. But if they don't want to read what I have to say, block me. That's their right
0: and I do you tweet what has
6: been... do you tweet under your real name um i don't have my last name in there. no okay no, no. Okay. but i have my first name for sure right right
0: and ha- have you noticed any deleterious effects on your life from your use of twitter
6: the only thing twitter really does is occupy much more of my time than it should um i i definitely there are times when, you know, as driving as a team driver, and the reason I'm doing that is because it pays decent, you know, we're we're paid 140,000 a year each to drive a truck around the country. And and I'll do that. But um, when I'm off of my shift, when I'm driving, I'm supposed to be sleeping. And Twitter kind of, you know, distracts me from that.
0: (laughs) And it's, it's a way for you to connect about ideas that uh, mean something to you. So,
6: yeah, it does. I mean, I'm very pro-life. Um, that doesn't, and I try to explain to people that I'm going to be, you know, very dogmatic about that. But I also use this example if we're going to get on that topic. Um, I was dating for a while a woman who's in a wheelchair. She was a, a cop, got shot by another cop, and put in a wheelchair. And she was very pro-choice, and I'm not going to back down to her. But I told her, too, I said, oh, I want you to have my perspective. I'm never going to agree with you. But if you ever wanted to go to a rally, I would go there with you to make sure that you were safe. And I would hold your signs if your arms got tired. So, I mean, there. my, my whole point is um, I might not agree with her position, but I loved her. And I have that same opinion. You know, my best friend made his wife get an abortion. I'm very pro-choice, and I don't like what he did, but he's still my friend. Um, and I don't understand why there's anything wrong with, with being that way. So on Twitter, I can talk about these sorts of things, and I like it a lot. You were talking earlier about going to sports bars and watching sports and men connecting that way. I 100% agree with everything you said about that. You know, I'm a, I'm an introvert. My, the Myers-Briggs personality, um, uh, you know, assessments, they're very accurate about me. I, I'm an INTP. I get a lot out of going to sports bars. That's all I need. I can go there, spend a few hours with strangers talking about the 49ers, or right. if they're, you know, a, a fan of the team that we're playing, um, you know, just go back and forth with them, get all the social interaction I need and, and go right back to my life. So I you know, I, I was listening to Elliot speak and I was like, I don't think the alien Elliot must be the an introvert like me, because I I definitely see the value in in going to sports bars and having these conversations and getting a lot out of it. That's uh you know, I'm, I don't have a whole lot of people in my life, which is kind of typical of INTP personality types. You, you have a handful who you like to be around and it doesn't mean that you can't be around the general public. You can, you can function fine. It means that when it's time to recharge, you you like to be alone. And that definitely describes me. So yeah, when you were, uh, when you were talking on that portion of the show, I was like, yeah, there you go, Luke. You exactly, you know, articulate how I feel about going to these sports bar events. In fact, I'm going to go to one tomorrow. You know, we're in Denver right now and our truck um, needs a new air compressor. So we're waiting for the Peterbilt dealer to install one. And tomorrow I'm going to a sports bar so that I could watch my Niners hopefully beat the the Dolphins and, I'll get a lot out of that. I'll BS with people. I have no problem walking up to a stranger and starting a conversation. And then after the three and a half hour game, I'll go back to my room and, and enjoy the silence.
0: How often do you go to church these days?
6: Well, since I'm, I'm driving so much, I don't really have um, too much chance, but before I started driving, I'd go all the time. Um, I go to Catholic service. Um, I converted in 2014 and for various reasons, but um, I pray all the time. I feel very close to God. I talk to God all the time um, daily. And, uh, you know, and I, and I had the honor when I was in prison, you know, I was in prison for a year and 11 months. And for about six months of that time, I got to meet with that Orthodox rabbi I mentioned and, gain a different perspective on, uh, you know, on the old Testament that I'd ever had. And, um, he, he told me about the chumash and, and I told my father about that. My, my dad actually ordered the same book that I was reading from and he uses it in his sermons. Um, and it really deepened my faith quite a bit. Um, you know, I, I, I held up my end of the deal and I never spoke about Jesus to the, the rabbi and even though he tried to talk me into reading books that to convince me of why jesus couldn't be the the messiah i didn't respond because i'd made the promise i wouldn't uh i'm still very strong in my christian faith but it's even deeper um so even though i don't go to church you know because i'm out on the road driving every sunday um i definitely feel a deeper connection than ever to my faith.
0: Uh, Elliot, a lot of Christians would say that you could go to church if you just put a little more effort in. In fact, they they say, Elliot, it's more important that you go to church on a Sunday rather than a sports bar on a Sunday. What would your reaction be to that sort of critique?
6: Um, so, so for me, um, I usually don't have Sundays off. This is a unique situation only because the truck is being repaired and I would tell them, no, you know, I cannot go to church because I am driving, um, down the road, down the interstate. Uh, sometimes I do have my phone on its little holder and I, you know, and I watch an online service, but, um, I usually watch a Protestant service, even though I converted to be Catholic, because, you know, Catholic online services aren't really that widely available and are rather boring. You kind of have to be there. But tomorrow, um, you know, I'm I'm in a place where I can walk to the sports bar. It's less than a mile from where my motel is. I have no idea where the nearest church is. So, yeah, I don't have a I you know, a plan on going to church tomorrow. And um, I do believe that it's important, you know, when you can to go to church. But um, I also don't think that God is dogmatic about that. We're his kids. You know, and my my co-driver and I were just talking about this today over, over lunch. There's pretty much nothing my son could do that would make him less my son. I will always love him. And I think God is the perfect parent, and he's better than any human parent could ever be. And while humans might say that it's very important for us to go to church, and God probably would say it's important too, he's not going to (laughs) get overly upset because he understands each particular situation. You know, we were talking... um, My co-driver told me about a a woman that he read um, an article about. Her son was on death row in Texas. I don't know what he did, but he was on death row, so it couldn't have been good. And she said that she's going to fight tooth and nail to for her son up until the very last moment, because that's her son, and to her it doesn't matter what he did to be put in that place. It's still her son, and she loves him. And God's the same; he's he's better than any human parent. So he's not going to condemn me because I don't find a church in Denver on a Sunday when I'm waiting for a truck to be repaired.
0: What What effect does it have on you? Forget about God and God's judgment. What effect does it have on you to go from weekly church attendance to, let's say, not having attended church in two or three months?
6: Well, for me, um, I'm different than many Christians in in that um, I've read the Bible 23 times in two languages and eight translations. And I constantly read it. And I think that if you're doing that, you're always going to connect with God. You know, there are a lot of people that they only connect with God when they go to church and they don't make it a part of their life the rest of the time. So I don't feel like God's I don't feel like I am. I'm hurt in any way by having a job I hold uh, because being an INTP personality type means that you like being alone. Anyway, I connect to God through my mind and through what I read and, and that's never stopped. I'm always reading.
0: Do you like being alone more than is good for you? Cause I also enjoy being alone, but I know that I like being alone more than is good for me. I have to push myself to be social i have to push myself to make you know plans with, with friends it goes against the grain but it is good for me so are your natural inclinations well, think- towards being alone what's in your best interest or it, have you found it's important to push yourself to have more socialization than comes naturally
6: so so when I, I'm glad that you brought that up because you say what's well, good for you. Well, who determines that? <laughs> I mean, when I was in prison, for example, they they don't like guys to be in solitary confinement. I was in solitary confinement for eleven months. I loved it. I actually they, they tried to move me and and I filed appeals to stay solo. So I mean, God made a whole lot of people and we're very different, and only 2% are the INTP personality type like I am. So 98% of people aren't going to like what I like. So to say that I need to go out and be around people, I think that that's trying to change the person that God made me to be. I don't have a problem being around people. Before I went to prison, I spoke in front of groups from 50 to to 20,000. Uh, you know, uh, the, the the smallest group I ever spoke in front of was 50 people, and the largest was over 20,000 people. I have no problem interacting with people. In INTP, the only difference, you know, there's a lot of, like, you know, Protestant um, church pastors who are INTPs. And that doesn't mean you can't stand in front of a group or lead a group. It, it, it just means where do you go to recharge? And for me, that's to be alone.
0: Okay, so, so you're saying I, that, you, that your own natural inclinations in this area are perfectly suited to what's good for you. Because I have a whole it, lot of inclinations in many different areas that are not perfectly suited to what's good for me. But in this area, no, your inclination to be alone is perfectly suited to what's good for you. It's not something that you absolutely. need to moderate. It's not something you need to reduce. It's not something you need to overcome. No. It perfectly aligns with your best interests.
6: Yeah, and there's a book book by a woman named Susan Cain that's called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And part of her point, which is it's a very good book, is that people try to change introverts and tell us that it's not good for us to be alone and they're full of shit. It is good for certain people to be alone. That's how we're made. And there's nothing wrong with that. And what's wrong is when people who don't understand it think they need to change it. Because some of the world's best discoveries come from people who are just like us. Albert Einstein, for example. It's, you know, people who like to go out there and be alone, they usually have a higher IQ, they're more intelligent. They come up with some of the world's best discoveries. And to say that because the majority of the world are extroverts, that we need to also be extroverts is just completely false.
0: How much value do you think there are in Myers-Briggs tests?
6: I like Myers-Briggs. I've, uh, they're very accurate when I take them. They so, so it, 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 it
0: it speaks to you. It tells you what you want to hear, but do you think it's, it's generally valid?
6: I think it is. I mean, there's a lot of people that, that have problems with Myers-Briggs. I've read about it and heard about it. But uh, every time I've taken one, I've, it's given me the INTP result, and it describes me to a T. There's a website called 16personalities.com, and when I go there and I put in INTP, then everything I read completely describes me. Um, but you know again my personality type is only shared by two percent of the population so you know it it, it makes natural sense that people are going to say well that's not the norm well yeah you're right it's not the norm two percent is not the norm but it doesn't mean that i need to change
0: <laughs> i would i would uh challenge you that your personality type is heavily situation dependent that if you hadn't gone through the the difficult, painful and even humiliating experiences of close well, that... you wouldn't you wouldn't have the same personality if instead you'd taken a if I had taken a different path, you'd taken a different path, but we would have different personalities and we would be more outgoing and we would be more social. Well, I,
6: mean, I understand why you could say that, but I don't agree because um I graduated in nineteen ninety two and started college in nineteen ninety two. And that was the first time that I started, you know, taking personality assessments. And I've always been the same. Before I ever gained any kind of fame, before I ever made any kind of money, I've always been what I am now. And what happened was my parents, which I very much am thankful for, would push me to still, even though I didn't want to, Yet in front of people now i did the same with my son he too is an introvert amazing kid so he can stand in front of a group and he's given one of the best speeches i've ever heard in my life uh being an intp doesn't mean that you can't interact with people rick warren for example he's he's a very well-known protestant pastor he has his church has thousands of people. I think it's m- way more than 20,000 people who attend. He's, he's an introvert. Introverts make good leaders. It doesn't mean you can't be around people. It doesn't mean that you're going to feel... Okay, uh, Okay, we're, we're,
0: we're repeating the, the, the point. I, I get it. Let me, let me uh, extend it. So in that area, I, I have a very skeptical view of my own nature. So in, in that area, you believe that your natural inclinations are perfectly calibrated to what's best for you. What about other areas yeah. of life, say, with regard to eating food? Do you believe that your own natural inclinations are 100% calibrated to what's best for you?
6: No, I'm a fat dude. You know, I'm 280 pounds and, and I love to eat. Um, you know, when I was in prison and I and I couldn't do that, I got down to 170 and I was riding eight miles a day. So, but I think that I'm an intelligent enough person that I could sit there and analyze each situation and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm wrong on here and I should do differently. So, you know, the amount of people that I hang around, I see nothing wrong with it. The amount of food I eat and what kind of food I eat, yeah, yeah, I should do better. And, you you know, in in my personal situation, the decisions I've made that has resulted in me having to spend time in prison. Yeah, I definitely should have done better. But I think that's also part of my personality type is, uh, you know, some people can't look at themselves critically. And I I have no problem with that. And And, and I don't uh, hate myself for the mistakes I've made.
0: And what about with regard to alcohol and, and wine is what you instinctively want? Is that 100% calibrated with your best interests?
6: It's not um, because my, my, you know, my grandfather was an alcoholic and and it's something that I do believe is hereditary. Um, I got a DUI in June and, on june the 24th and uh you know and that was the first one ever in my life but and then i didn't drink again until thanksgiving and um that was the first time since june that i drank and then today i've I've had some and you know because we're sitting in a hotel in denver and i feel safe because you know i'm in a a room where my co-driver's here and we're not going anywhere and i don't have a car to drive so you know that's what i'm saying i can be critical about myself and say you know Drinking is probably not best for me.
0: How much um, but, confidence do you have that you can control uh, on your, your own resources how much you drink?
6: Well, I mean, I, I have pretty good confidence. My, my brother was different. He just, he's dead because he couldn't control, you know, what he, what he does. Um, me, on the other hand, like I said, from June until Thanksgiving Day, I not have a drop. Um, So
0: you're 90% plus confident in your own abilities to regulate your alcohol intake.
6: Yeah. I mean, today, for example, when I I started, you know, I drank earlier and it's been beer, nothing other than beer. um, I did it on purpose. I told my co-driver, I said, you know what? I like to drink. I like the feeling. Uh, I've only had some on Thanksgiving day, but today we're doing nothing but sitting in a hotel and watching movies and having food delivered. So I'm going to go buy some Negro Modelo. <laughs> and so that's what I did.
0: How many people do you think who, who get a DUI would resolve never to drink again?
6: I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, that some DUIs are, are kind of cheesy. Um, you know, I know a guy that got one and he was sitting in his own driveway, but he happened to be in his car, which was started. So, you know, he got a DUI for that. In that sort of case, that's, that's kind of stupid. If you're out there on the road driving around, then you deserve it. And, and I think that, uh, you know, a lot of those people, they might, I think that personally, this is just a guess. Some of them are just people who are partying and they don't, um, think that they'll be in trouble if they drive home. No, then there's other people like me. I'm an alcoholic, you know. Um, and so I shouldn't be driving at all when I'm when I'm drinking. So, I th- I think it's kind of hard to to answer your question because there's so many people. I mean, we we so often try to put people in boxes and label them and we don't account for how much diversity there is in what the people God created. Mm
0: -hmm. And what about with regard to sex and looking at attractive women, looking at naked attractive women, I find that my own natural inclinations are completely counter to what's best for me. So there's absolutely no calibration between my own natural desires and what is for my own good. So in so many areas of life, what I naturally want is not good for me. How about with regard to the world of sex and, you know, pretty women? And, uh, <laughs> we talked women. about
6: that today, too. We talked about that today, too. My co-driver and I, when I say we, that's who I'm talking about. Because um, he's Catholic like me. he doesn't. He's learning English. I'm learning, well, I'm pretty decent at Spanish. So I've had several years of it. But anyway, we were talking about that exact same thing. You know, he's a married man. And and if you're going to follow scripture, Christian Catholic teaching, you, you believe that God has one woman for one man. It does not mean that you're not attracted to a whole bunch of different women or whatever your attraction might be. In our case, it's women. Um, but, uh, you know, you you make the choice. To, to stick with one. I don't think that that makes you unnatural or abnormal. That's exactly how you were created. I mean, King David and Solomon, they both had many wives and concubines. So they basically gave in to those natural desires that got stuck inside of us. But anything that's worth having and worth value, you're going to have to work hard for. So the fact that, um, you know, as heterosexual males were attracted to many women, that's not unnatural. It's just a, it's just a battle that God gave us. Every man needs something to fight for. And, um, I think that the right thing to do of course is to fight your own natural nature to want many women and, and to settle for one and to make yourself happy with that. So that's an area
0: where what you naturally desire is, is very different from what's best for you.
6: Absolutely. Sure. Because what what happens is you have to come to a place of trust. What's best for you is what God says is best for you. So you have to show trust in him by saying, okay, maybe it doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to submit myself to that idea that you know better.
0: Okay. But that that God says it's not good for man to be alone.
6: Right. So he wants you to be though with one. I think that all of scripture One thing that i mean i can only speak for the christian view but one thing that people often do is they confuse what scripture talks about with what god approves just because scripture tells us that david and 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 solomon had many women that doesn't mean god approves of that god scripture seems to make it pretty clear god wants us to be with one well, so, God
0: said it's not good for man to be alone. I mean, this isn't right. Scripture. This is God With, says it's not good for man to be alone. But Donnie believes it is good 99% of the time for Donnie to be alone.
6: Okay. So, yeah, God, God does say that. Okay. Um, and And then also there's – so we have to take the totality of Scripture. For example, Paul also says that he, Paul, in the New Testament – prefers that you can be alone as I am. That's one of the things that he writes. Now, he does not claim that God is the one stating that. He's saying that he, as one of the people who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, prefers that, you know, a person can be alone and focus on God. Um, I've been married. I have a son. We divorced when he was one. He's in in his 20s now. I personally don't have any desire to date again. The last girlfriend I had was almost two years ago. And I was telling my coworker that too today when we were having lunch. I said, you know one of the things that just annoyed the crap out of me was having to decide where we're going to go to eat. (laughs) You know, know, I'd, I'd say, well, I don't really feel in the mood for this. Well, I don't really feel in the mood for that. And like, you know, it takes you a good 30 minutes to decide what restaurant you're going to go to. I don't even small little annoyances like that. I am thankful. I don't have them in my life right now. You know, so I, I think that, um, You know, God says it's not good for a man to be alone. Well, I haven't been alone. I I had a wife. I have a son. um, I have people in my life who I love. But And and again, he made us so diverse that I don't think that there's any one mold that fits everybody.
0: How much uh, talk radio do you listen to these days?
6: I have a hard time. It seems to put me asleep while I'm driving, so (laughs) I don't listen to, to too much. so so
0: what do you listen to if anything while you're driving
6: audiobooks um i like a lot of audiobooks i like uh, you know to think a lot i like to read things on twitter and read stories i do a lot more reading than than listening
0: right but when you're driving i I would hope you're not reading
6: no that's where the audiobooks come into play but yeah you Uh, know when we're driving now for example i drive one of the common routes that we drive is um all the way to denver from northern california and a good portion of that is across the nevada nevada and utah desert on 80 so even if i was reading as long as my phone is on a on a holder that's you know it's pretty straight and hardly any traffic but uh, you know so i do definitely have to admit that i i look at twitter and, and see the updates
0: so what are the most meaningful books that you've read in the last 9 months that uh, might come to mind right now I mean read as in listen to as an audiobook
6: um, when i just listen to audiobooks i have to admit that a lot of times i like things that entertain me like stephen king but um when i'm back in the sleeper and i'm trying to do something with my mind before going to sleep there are a lot more apps that um that i found uh you know i'd have to go get my phone to 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 tell you the names but for a long time only jews were allowed to read jewish commentary on on scripture that's not the case anymore now anybody can download the app and read it and so it's a fascinating new world for me the Chumash, for instance the commentary that's included in that the art scroll edition up until you know 2014 2015 I was never allowed to read that because I'm not a Jew. And um getting caught up on on things like that really feed my soul.
0: And uh, what what type of chumash Kumash means the pentateuch with with commentary so but there are many different chumashim as there are ones put out by the reform movement others put out by the conservative movement there are many put out by the orthodox movement uh, do you know which type so, of chumash you're yeah, studying? Yeah
6: well so what i'm what i'm referring to is one i was given when i was in prison and i uh, i have had it since then so it's it, they call it the stone edition it's a yes, blue yes, hardcover yes yes i
0: i've yeah very familiar it's probably the most common one in orthodox modern orthodox synagogues in in america
6: yeah no i'd never been exposed to that and then when i you know when i sent my email my handwritten letter to the rabbi and asked if i could come the first day I was there, after he saw it, and he could tell that I wasn't just someone trying to play games, he let me borrow that. And um, then I told my dad about it. The pastor, you know, he's an Assembly of God pastor, and he ordered it online for himself. And he preaches from it. And some of the commentary shared in there is not something that that Protestants have ever heard. So it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I don't know if, you know, if, if a Jew would take that, you know, for granted or not. But for me, that that book, I've read it over and over and over again because it's just fascinating. It's completely different than, because what happens when you're a Protestant is we read these scriptures, but you put them through your own filter, your own lens and your own life experiences and you're, it's wrong. You know, so when I was in prison every Wednesday, I got to meet with the rabbi for two to three hours. And and I I said, my only goal in being here is to hear you tell me what these passages mean to you. (laughs) And he told me things that just blew my mind. And and to this day, uh, you know, ever since uh, that's happened, it just kind of opened a curiosity in me, and I spend, uh, you know, he told me when I was in prison to not try to read too much at a time, to take small portions and to meditate on them, and that's what I've been doing because I trust him. He was a good man. Uh, I definitely want to read more than I do, but he says, no, you take this passage, you read the commentary, you you know, and, and then you just ponder on it even if it even if it's a week and and that's what I do.
3: Hmm.
0: Okay, I I'm, I'm about ready to uh move on, but is is there any other topic that you wanted to discuss anything that uh comes to mind before I move on for today?
6: No, no. You know the the thing that really got my attention, I didn't know if you were live on Twitter or not. Um because it says something about December 1st, which, as you know, is not today. <laughs> Today's December 3rd, well, so I didn't know well, if you were live.
0: Yeah, I mis- mislabeled that.
6: And so I, I couldn't tell if if it was like something that you recorded on the 1st and just posted it today or not. So that's why I sent you the email, hey, are you really live? But, yeah, the thing about Kanye, that blows my mind, because I don't understand, you know, and now I understand, I, I'm not a, one of these people that, that says that uh, persecutions have never happened. I a hundred percent agree and believe just about anything that Jews tell me. (laughs) But what I don't understand is when people like Kanye get on there and they, and they show any kind of hate towards Jews because it, it's not what I've ever been taught. And it makes no sense to me. And it makes me think they're ignorant. They don't do any rational thinking. Like, how can you like, because, you know, now, Again, I don't know this from experience, but from what I read, the biggest thing is, oh, Jews killed Christ. And like I said at the beginning of our discussion, well, duh, they had to. (laughs) That's what was predicted. That's the reason that if you believe that you have salvation through Christ, that's the only reason you have it. So you should be thanking them, (laughs) Not, not sending them hate if that was the case, which I'm not convinced it was, but anyway.
0: Yeah. Okay, Donnie, uh, good to catch up with you. Feel free to send me emails or pop in the chat whenever you want to come back on the show.
6: All right, thanks.
0: Okay, man, take care, Donnie. Okay, that's uh, Donnie Pauling, regular on this show. i put a link to his Wikipedia entry if you want to know more about his life trajectory. All right, we're at a very dangerous time. Right now, more dangerous than during the Cold War, according to political scientist John Bishambo. Involving
5: great powers. One is the U.S.-China dyad, and the other is the U.S.-Russia dyad. During the unipolar moment, you had no great power competition. Most of you young people in the audience were born in the unipolar moment. There was only one great power in the system in the unipolar moment, and you cannot have great power competition by definition when you have only one great power. In the bipolar world that I was born into, there were two great powers, and you had one conflict dyad. The United States and the Soviet Union. So what you see is today you have a major conflict dyad in Asia involving China and the United States, a major conflict dyad involving great powers here in Europe involving the United States and Russia. That's two conflict dyads versus one in the Cold War, and none in the unipolar moment. Furthermore, war is more likely; security competition is more likely to turn into war in the U.S.-China competition and in the U.S.-Russia competition than it was during the Cold War. So what I'm saying to you is that we have more potential wars between great powers. Right, so when you have more potential
0: wars, all right, it means you're that much closer to an absolute disaster. I was talking to someone who's a professional in the field of machine learning. He goes to a lot of machine learning conferences, and I asked him how adept the Chinese, because every Chinese consumer product, of which I'm aware, seems like crap. And China has put a lot of resources into developing its machine learning. And he says he doesn't really know how far ahead the Chinese are or how far behind they are, because when there are Chinese scientists at conferences, they, they basically congregate with their own. They just kind of hive off into their own silo. They basically only talk to each other. So I think he would be fairly skeptical about how advanced the Chinese are with regard
5: to AI and machine learning. In the multipolar world we now live in, right? And furthermore, those wars are more likely. Now, why do I say that? I think what I have to do here is explain to you how I think about uh, the security competition between the United States and China in East Asia. Let's tell you what I think is going on there. And then talk about what's going on here in Europe in terms of the U.S.-Russia competition. And, of course, when I talk about the U.S.-China competition, what I'm going to do is focus mainly on Taiwan, and when I focus on the U.S.-Russia competition here in Europe, I'll focus mainly on Ukraine. And what I'm going to try and do is convince you that these are really dangerous situations. Now, with regard to U.S.-China competition, what's happening here is that China is a peer competitor of the United States. If you were to rank order the three great powers in the system now, the United States remains the most powerful state on the planet. China is a close second, and there's great fear in the United States that they will eventually overtake us. And Russia is a distant third. Russia is a weak great power. There are a number of people who argue it shouldn't even be considered a great power. People should argue that we're in a bipolar world today that involves just the U.S. and China. I don't agree with that. I think Russia is a great power, but it's the weakest of the three great powers. China is a potential hegemon. It's a potential hegemon in Asia. China is growing very powerful, and in international politics, when you grow very powerful, the ideal situation is to dominate your region of the world. It's to be a regional hegemon and to make sure that no other country on the planet, really no other great power on the planet, dominates its region of the world the way you dominate yours. Of course, uh, the paradigmatic example of this is the United States of America. We are the only regional hegemon in the world. We dominate the Western Hemisphere. No American goes to bed at night worrying about any other country in the Western Hemisphere attacking us. Why? Because we are Godzilla. Godzilla. In the international system, you want to be Godzilla, and you want to make sure you're the only Godzilla on the planet. Well, the Chinese have figured this out. The Chinese want to dominate Asia the way... The United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. The Chinese know full well what happens to you in international politics when you're weak. They call it the century of national humiliation. It runs from the late 1840s to the late 1940s. They were weak, and when they were weak, they were taken advantage of. You can rest assured that they want to make sure that they are by far the most powerful state in Asia, and you can rest assured that they'd like to get the Americans out beyond the first island chain, out beyond the second island chain, and far away from China. It's the best way to survive in international politics, to be a regional hegemon. And the Chinese are taking all that economic might they have, and they're turning it into military might. Now... How are the americans reacting to this it's very clear the americans do not tolerate other regional hegemons in the system the 20th okay so this was first streamed two days ago so i i
0: believe that this debate took place two or three days ago
5: century shows this very clearly the united states played a key role in putting imperial germany imperial japan nazi germany and the soviet union on the scrap heap of history we had no intention of letting any of those four countries dominate either Europe or Asia. You can rest assured we have no intention of allowing China to dominate Asia. And in fact, we're- so we use a lot of humanist,
0: uh, democratic, liberal rhetoric to disguise na- naked self-interest. For example, U.S. entered both World War One and World War Two relatively late, so they let the other powers exhaust themselves, you know, bleed themselves dry. U.S. comes in at the midway through or towards the end, and they get to dominate with relatively few casualties. But the U.S. tries to disguise this frequently cold-blooded you know, assertion of its own interests with very pretty universalist democratic rhetoric. So there's absolutely no connection between the rhetoric that individuals, groups, politicians, and countries use and what's really going on. People almost never say what they mean, and people almost never mean what they say. We're not going to pursue a
5: pure containment strategy, we're going to pursue a rollback strategy as well. We're going to try and weaken China the way we weakened the Soviet Union during the Cold War. We have our gun sight.
0: Right. So the best way, one of the best ways for a country or a group to protect itself is to weaken its biggest rivals. That doesn't sound very liberal. doesn't sound very democratic. It doesn't sound like it's abiding by international law, but that's the way the world works. If you're in business and you are able to get away with weakening a rival, you're in a stronger position. If you're competing with another bloke for a woman and you're able to weaken his position and get away with it, you are in a stronger position. So from this realist perspective, we're all locked in an iron cage together. And what matters is our relative degree of power. And when you weaken an enemy, arrival, rival, right? You are then made stronger. And this goes completely against democratic peace theory, goes completely against the rhetoric and the analysis that you hear in the mainstream
5: news. On the, Chinese. the Chinese, of course, fully understand that, and they're going to great lengths to try to deal with us. And at the same time, as I said to you, the Chinese have a deep-seated interest in achieving regional hegemony. And the more powerful they grow economically, the better off they'll be at developing the military capability to achieve regional hegemony. This
0: so John Mearsheimer is an international relations theorist. And so what he's presenting here are his theories about how international relations work. And he says if he could, if he could be right 70% of the time with these theories, he would be really happy. So John Mearsheimer understands that you know, reality is, is frequently you know, much more you know, complicated than, than what we would like and that no theory is adequate to, to deal with know, every contingency. So he's not claiming he's always right. He's not claiming that it's 99% sure that his
5: model is right. He would love for his theories to be 70% right. This is why, of course, the United States is trying to slow down Chinese economic growth. So what you have in East Asia is an intense security competition between China and the United States. And the principal focus is on Taiwan. And Taiwan is a really dangerous situation. There is no analogous situation in the Cold War, the 1947 to 1989 Cold War. Berlin...
0: So we're going out live right now across Odyssey, going out live right now across Rumble, Twitter, my Facebook profile, Facebook uh, page, and YouTube. So those are the various entities where when I can go live through Restream, that's where I'm going live. So a lot fewer restrictions on what you can say in chat if you go to uh, Twitter
5: or Rumble or Odyssey. It was not the equivalent of Taiwan. Why is Taiwan so dangerous? Taiwan is remarkably dangerous because... Number one, the Chinese consider it sacred territory, and they desperately want it back. Number two, the Americans believe firmly that for a variety of reasons, it's important that we not let China take Taiwan, because it has great strategic value for us. So what's happening here is that the United States is now moving closer and closer to Taiwan. The Nancy Pelosi visit's just one indicator— how we're moving closer and closer to Taiwan. And this, of course, enrages the Chinese because this is sacred territory. This is nationalism at play. The Americans are preventing us from getting Taiwan back. So you have a lot Okay, so in the traditional way of
0: looking at life, there are not just sacred territories. There are also sacred words. There are sacred symbols, such as the flag. there, There are sacred spaces. There are sacred people, right? From the modern liberal conception of reality in the self there are not sacred territories there are not sacred words there are not sacred groups of people they're not sacred individuals right there's not the sacred so this is one of the great dividers between the left and the right wing understanding of the self right the more right wing you go the more you believe in the sacred and also the opposite of the sacred the, the profane the, the demonic all right? So someone who believes in demons who are active in this world, they have a more traditional worldview than I do, while I have a more traditional worldview than most uh, modern liberals. So it's a continuum. But uh, the more you believe in the sacred, the profane, the demonic, and the divine, and that it's in the world around us, it's in, especially concentrated in certain places, in certain words, in certain symbols – The more you believe that, the more likely you are to be on the right. The less you believe that, the more likely you are to be on the left.
5: And then the third reason is, it's easy to imagine a Cold War in East Asia turning into a hot war over Taiwan, because it would be a battle over an island in a huge body of water. During the Cold War, when Carl and I were young, it was hard to imagine starting a war in Central Europe, because you had two massive armies with thousands of nuclear weapons in their inventory. And if those massive armies crashed into each other with all those nuclear weapons, we probably would have all gotten incinerated. So when we ran war games during the Cold War, it was very hard to get a war going in Europe because everybody understood what the consequences would be. It's much. So what about
0: Martin Luther King? Hasn't he been made sacred? Well, from a traditional perspective, when we look at what the left is doing from our right wing perspective, it looks like they're making Martin Luther King sacred. That is not how they experience it. How they experience it is Martin Luther King is a symbol for the ever-growing expansion of, of knowledge and education and uh, human freedom. So the left believes that human nature is basically good and what is impeding people is ignorance and bigotry and the solution is education. That's why people on the left and liberals always want a hector to bully, to educate, to elevate people into their kind of rarefied, buffered sense of individual identity, of an autonomous, strategic self, as opposed to the porous identity of traditionalists. So from a right-wing perspective, the greatest dangers are disorder and contagion. From a left-wing perspective, the greatest dangers are ignorance and bigotry. And Martin Luther King is an example of someone who is educated and has the power through his story to educate other people and relieve them of the two great evils ignorance and bigotry so they don't look at this as sacred they look at this as being realistic and pragmatic and you know very much in reality they don't understand that they also have a partisan ideological perspective on life so those of us on the right understand generally speaking that we have a partisan Ideological perspective on on life, and we look at people on the left as also belonging to a partisan ideological perspective on life. But that is not how people on the left experience it. They experience it as they are the realistic ones. They are the pragmatic ones. They are the ones who have transcended sectarian folkways. They have transcended you know religious mores. They have transcended you know primitive forms of uh, nationalism that they are, you know, modern technocratic, pragmatic. So how people understand themselves is frequently very different from how other people understand themselves it's
5: much easier to imagine a war breaking out over Taiwan. It's a small island out in the middle of a large body of water. And by the way, the other two points of friction in East Asia are the South China Sea and the East China Sea. And you can imagine a war breaking out over those two bodies of water. So you see the different scenarios between the Cold War, Central Europe, and okay so
0: a question from donnie in the chat is reading art scroll a bad thing well it depends on what you're looking for so art scroll is an orthodox jewish publication that is primarily aimed at a traditional orthodox perspective so it all depends what you're using the, the art scroll for if you are looking for disinterested scholarship scroll is absolutely the wrong place to go, right? But if you are interested in a conventional, safe, authoritative, you know, widely accepted, you know, in-group perspective then of, of people who are traditional Orthodox, then scroll is very much the way to go. On the other hand, if you're looking for the latest in secular biblical scholarship, you know, the Anchor Bible series is the way to go. But uh, the Anchor Bible series does not come with the you know, the elevated you know godly uh, commentaries of of art scrolls so it 's all depending on what you 're looking for if you 're looking for scholarship you 're looking for disinterested scientific pursuit of truth wherever it leads our scroll's absolutely the wrong way to go if you want to get something that is is safe and comfy within the cocoon of Orthodox Judaism that is, you know, not universally accepted within traditional Orthodox Judaism, then art scroll is
5: a great way to go. So it all depends what you want. Cold war in East Asia between China and the United States over Taiwan or the South China Sea or the East China Sea. So there's big trouble coming in East Asia. I'm not arguing here that war is inevitable.
0: So for example, art scroll will lie to you. Art scroll will tell you things that are just plainly not true because. From an art scroll perspective, if by telling you lies, they can get you to be more respectful of Torah, more observant of Torah, more, more religious, right? Telling lies then is in service of a good, good end, and therefore it's acceptable, right? From an academic perspective, from a truth-seeking perspective, you know, telling lies in the service of some ideological good is a bad thing. So it all depends on what you you most value. So, you know, art scroll is good for uh, reinforcing a, a traditional orthodox perspective on life and on sacred text. But it is a terrible source if what you're primarily interested in is the, the disinterested pursuit of truth. But it is going to be very difficult to avoid. So. If you want to feel good, if you want to feel happy, don't listen to John Mersheimer. Right? Mersheimer gives you brutal realism. So if you want brutal realism about a disinterested pursuit of truth with regard to sacred text, if you want brutal realism, if you don't want brutal realism, then you know, read Art Scroll. If you want brutal uh, pursuit of truth wherever it leads with regard to text, then
5: you'll ignore Art Scroll. Avoid that intense security competition turning into a real war. Okay, let's shift gears and go to Europe and talk about what's going on in Ukraine. And here we're focusing mainly on the U.S.-Russian dyad. Uh, And it's very important to understand that the Americans drive the train in the West. Uh, Putin doesn't want to talk to the Europeans. He wants to talk to the Americans. He knows who the boss is, right? So when you think about the war in Ukraine, it's really the U.S. and the Russians that matter the most, in addition to the Ukrainians, of course. Okay, so
0: the boss, frequently doesn't have the title the boss, right? The boss frequently isn't the boss on paper. So, not only is the situation the boss, it's not always clear, you know, who's the boss. Because what is stated, you know, on stationery, what is stated officially is frequently not what is true. So what we try to do on this show is go beneath the rhetoric, go beneath the news, go beneath the official proclamations, go beneath the stationery, try to find out like who really
5: is the boss now the conventional wisdom in the west is that what is happening here is that putin is an imperialist and he is bent on creating a greater russia or recreating the soviet union and what he is intent on doing in ukraine is conquering that country occupying that country and integrating it into a greater russia Uh, and in fact ukraine is the first stop on the train line. When he's done with Ukraine, he's going to move on to other states like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, maybe Poland, who knows. But he is an imperialist at heart. He's an aggressor who's interested in building an empire. This is the conventional wisdom that you all know well. I would imagine that most of you believe this. My view is this is simply wrong. Uh, There's no evidence to support it.
0: I have a worldview very similar to John Mearsham. I believe in historicism. I believe you can't understand text You can't understand historical events. You can't understand mythology. You can't understand religion. You can't understand economics and power politics without understanding everything in its context. So, Art Scroll is sort of the opposite of historicism. It believes that it is representing eternal truths, right? I believe you can't understand what was written in uh, a certain text without understanding who likely wrote it, what was the context in which they were writing. Who were they speaking to? Who were they speaking against? You know, what What were the circumstances in which the text was produced? So I'm very much of a historicist as opposed to one who looks for eternal truths in text. But I'm not only a historicist. I also at times wish to look for eternal truths in text. So I don't just have you know, one Way of of approaching text. So I appreciate Orthodox Judaism, I I value Orthodox Judaism, I live Orthodox Judaism, I love Orthodox Judaism, I listen to many Orthodox Jewish perspectives on text. I'm glad to to have that because there are some things where you benefit from having a non-rational, even irrational perspective where you benefit from, from faith and, and hope and you know, all sorts of wonderful religious virtues, even if they go against the quote-unquote scientific understanding of the text. So generally speaking, I take a historicist perspective like a John Mearsheimer, but there's a time and a place for just uh, surrendering yourself to God, to tradition, to the non-rational, even to what
5: seems irrational. I believe that if you're going to make that argument, you have to show evidence— that Putin said it was desirable to conquer Ukraine and create a greater Russia. You have... And the
0: chat says no politician asked Mearsheimer. Actually, actually, Viktor Orban invited John Mearsheimer over, and uh, John Mearsheimer consulted extensively with Viktor Orban at Viktor Orban's request. So, yes, many politicians pay attention to Mearsheimer, even consult Mearsheimer.
5: To show evidence that he thought it was feasible to do that, and you have to show evidence that. He said that that's what he was doing. There is no evidence, and I want to underline that word, no. There is no evidence that he thought it was desirable to conquer Ukraine or to create a greater Russia or to conquer any other country. There's no evidence that he thought it was feasible. And there's no evidence that he said that's what he was doing. Furthermore, he does not have the capability to do it. The Russians invaded Ukraine with 190,000 men. There's no way 190,000 men could conquer a piece of real estate with 40-plus million people in it, with 190,000 men. When the Germans invaded Poland in 1939, they went in with 1.5 million men. You need a huge army to conquer a country like Ukraine, occupy it, and incorporate it into your country. And you're not going to do that with 190,000 men. Furthermore, this man, Vladimir Putin, does not have the Wehrmacht at his fingertips. You've noticed how poorly the Russian army performs. So you have a small army that's not the Wehrmacht. There's no way this army could conquer all of Ukraine. And if you look at the strategy that's been employed, my argument makes perfect sense. This is not a case of Putin acting like an imperialist. My argument is, as I'm sure many of you know, that if you look carefully at what was going on, it's quite clear that the West's efforts to turn Ukraine into a Western bulwark on Russia's borders was viewed as an existential threat. The brightest of all red lines as Bill Burns, the U.S. ambassador to Moscow at the time said, by the entire Russian elite. The idea that Ukraine was going to be incorporated into NATO, the idea that Ukraine was going to be incorporated into the EU, the idea that you were going to promote an orange revolution and turn Ukraine into a pro-Western liberal democracy unacceptable to the Russians. It was an existential threat. You might not think it was an existential threat, but what you think doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what the Russians think. And the Russians thought it was an existential threat, and they made it unequivocally clear to us that it was an existential threat. And how did we react? We ignored what they said and we continued. That's a really
0: important point whenever I point out that someone else experienced something that you may have said or done, uh point out that you know, they had this negative experience or they're going to react in a way you're not going to like. People always say, oh, but I didn't mean it this way. But it doesn't really matter what you mean, right? You need to be effective in the world to understand how words and events are experienced by other people. So just because we think the extension of NATO right up to the borders of of Russia is not a threat to Russia, that doesn't mean that Russia experiences things that way. So people on the right experience things differently than people on the left. So it's just so common in daily life. People, when I point this out, they go, oh,
5: but I didn't mean it that way. That doesn't matter. How did the other party experience what you said? Can you pushing to bring Ukraine into NATO, pushing to bring Ukraine into the EU, pushing to turn it into a pro-Western liberal democracy? Why did we do that? I'll tell you why we did it. Because the Russians were weak. That's what happens when you're weak in international politics. The Russians protested NATO expansion from the get-go. The first tranche took place in 1999. The second tranche took, second tranche of expansion took place in 2004, right? The Russians screamed bloody murder both times. We didn't care. We just shoved it down their throat. They were weak. And when they're weak, you can do that. 1999, we succeeded. 2004, we succeeded. And then in 2008, we said, we're going to bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO. The Russians made it very clear, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. We're going to resist. And if we have to, we'll destroy Ukraine. This was clear a long time ago. What did we do? We doubled down. We just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And what you want to understand is that from the Russian perspective, this is an existential threat. They have to win this war. They cannot afford to lose it. If you accept the argument that Putin is an imperialist, and he's just bent on conquering some more territory and creating a greater Russia, and there's no really underlying security imperative, then you could cut a deal and end this war. But if you think that the Russians view this as an existential threat, you think about this conflict in very different ways because you're dealing with a great power that's armed to the teeth with thousands of nuclear weapons that sees itself facing an existential threat. Now, that's my view of the Russian perspective on how this has to end. They have to win. They cannot afford to lose. What is American policy and what is Ukrainian policy? American policy is we're going to beat them in Ukraine. This is, of course, Western policy. Norway is deeply involved in this. Our policy our policy is to defeat the Russians. Right? and uh, also wreck their economy with sanctions, and also promote regime change, and then put, in, put Putin on trial, and maybe even break apart Russia. This is their goal. We're going for victory. We think we can win in Ukraine. Putin has to win. We think we can win. And the Ukrainians, it's an open and shut case. Of course, from their point of view, they want to recover all their territory, and they want to weaken Russians as much as possible so that Russia can't pay a return visit. So the Russians... Are pursuing a clear-cut victory the ukrainians and the americans are pursuing a clear-cut victory what does this tell you this tells you there's no diplomatic solution there's no diplomatic solution to this one this is why everybody basically understands that this is going to be a protracted stalemate right? or at least they think it's going to be a protracted stalemate they think it's going to be a protracted stalemate because there's no solution there's another dimension to this the most worrisome of all and that's nuclear escalation russia thinks it faces an existential threat and again. What you think doesn't matter It's what the Russians think. They think they face an existential threat. What happens if NATO succeeds? What happens if we begin to roll the Russian army back in Ukraine and we're moving up to the borders of Russia? When I say we, I'm talking about Ukrainian forces backed by NATO power. The Russians are likely to use nuclear weapons to rescue the situation. This is a great power that's facing an existential threat and it's losing. You don't think it's going to think seriously, at least, about using its nuclear weapons? You can rest assured it is. I like to tell the story about 1945, Japan, 1945. The Americans had defeated Japan by August 1945. Japan was defeated. We just couldn't get the the Japanese to throw up their hands and surrender. And we thought that we were going to have to invade the Japanese home islands. And we knew how many casualties there had been at Okinawa and at Iwo Jima and we did not want to invade the Japanese home islands we were desperate to avoid invading the Japanese home islands and you know what we did we dropped two nuclear weapons on Japan and you know what you could do that because the Japanese didn't have nuclear weapons of their own and they were not going to retaliate well I have news for you the Ukrainians don't have nuclear weapons of their own and if the Russians use nuclear weapons in Ukraine Ukraine can't retaliate and we're not going to initiate a general thermonuclear nuclear war by using nuclear weapons to defend Ukraine so you can see the potential for nuclear escalation here is real. And given the consequences, the potential of escalation does not have to be very high to scare the living bejesus out of you. So you want to understand there's a perverse paradox here, which is the more successful we are in waging the war against Ukraine, the more likely it is that they'll turn to nuclear weapons. It's not to say they axiomatically will. It's just to say it becomes a real possibility. So the story I've told you here, in conclusion, is that during the Cold War, we had one conflict dyad, During the unipolar moment, we had none. During the multipolar world we now live in, there are two potential great power conflicts on the table. And both of them, as I tried to describe, are very dangerous. So all of you should be very fearful. Where are they in your analysis? Wasn't this also- I'll I'll, I'll answer your question, but I also want to deal with some of the points to comment. Uh, There's no question that states in Eastern Europe that were outside NATO wanted in. Uh, I don't blame Ukraine for wanting in. My point is, we don't have to accept them. There's no rule that says just because somebody wants to be in NATO uh, that we have an open-door policy and we take them in. And you didn't uh, with Ukraine. I actually don't believe that uh, at all. Uh, one, we, we have actually doubled down. They, they are not members of Ukraine, and no one has... You have to let me of, answer of the NATO question. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Uh, you you <laughs> raised a lot of excellent points, but, <laughs> and I want to deal with them. But uh, I think that if it's clear that the Russians view Ukraine in NATO as an existential threat you should not admit Ukraine to NATO or push to admit Ukraine to NATO because the end result is what you have today. We, in effect, pursued a policy that is leading to the destruction of Ukraine. If we had not attempted to make Ukraine a western bulwark on Russia's border with NATO expansion, EU expansion, and the color revolution, but especially NATO expansion, there'd be in all likelihood no war in Ukraine today. Crimea would still be part of Ukraine. And certainly those four oblasts that the Russians annexed would be part of Ukraine. But I just want to go back to a couple points that Carl raised. First of all, I've gone over in great detail every one of Putin's speeches, press conferences, and his writings. Uh, And the argument that he was bent on uh, incorporating Ukraine into Russia is usually uh, said to be outlined in a famous article that he wrote on July 12th, 2021. You can easily find this article on the internet. And he did say many of the things that Karl said about how it was regrettable, how Lenin set up the Soviet Union, and so forth and so on. He does not say in that paper that he is interested in conquering Ukraine, that it's desirable to conquer Ukraine, or that's what he intends to do. In fact, if you go look at the article, and this is the article that almost everybody points to, you should go read it. He says that he recognizes Russian national, excuse me, Ukrainian nationalism. He says that he recognizes Ukrainian independence, and he says that the future of Ukraine is up to the Ukrainian people. That's what he says in the article that everybody points to is the key piece of evidence that he was out to conquer Ukraine. As I said to you before, I can find no evidence that he thought he could conquer Ukraine. Just a word or two about capabilities. He had 190,000 troops. It was almost all of his army, as Carl pointed out. You're not going to conquer a piece of real estate as large as Ukraine with an army that small. And he might have dropped bombs on western Ukraine, but you can't conquer and occupy a country with bombs. You need ground forces to do that. He didn't have the ground forces. He never even attempted to conquer one-half of the country. At most, he attempted to conquer one-third of the country. He just didn't have the capability. This was not the Wehrmacht. Even with regard to Kyiv, he could not have conquered Kyiv with the forces that he had. It was just too small an army. He wanted to threaten Kyiv, but he couldn't conquer it. Uh, now, just one final point, and then I'll turn it back to you, Cecilia. Carl said that if you look at what happened uh, over the past few decades, it's a case of the east moving west and not the west moving east. I don't know how you could make that argument with NATO expansion. Of course it's the west moving east. NATO expansion, EU expansion, the color revolutions. Uh, Where were the Russians moving westward? Uh, The Russians weren't capable of launching a military offensive in the 1990s. They were so weak. And then Putin comes to power in 2000, and over time he resurrects the Russians. He brings them back from the dead. But they don't have the military capability to go on the offensive. As you know, in the August 2008 military campaign in Georgia, the Russian army performed terribly. They just don't have the military capability. There's no evidence that the East is moving West. It's the West that's moving East. And this is what presents an existential threat to the Russians. But what about if you go back to 2007? That is when Putin, in his speech in Munich, announced that, in his view, the multipolar... Okay,
0: let's uh, say hello to Rodney Martin. Rodney, how are you?
1: Rodney, do you hear me? Okay.
0: Let's uh, hope we get uh, Rodney aboard soon. The
5: world was already arriving. Now, in your presentation, you said 2017. That is 10 years later. So Rodney. isn't there a possibility that Putin, from that moment on, has that in mind as he goes forward no. from 2008 and then interprets things No, the famous Munich, Munich speech in 2007 that Cecilia is referencing is where Putin first makes it manifestly clear that he is angry at the West for their policies, which he thinks do not take into account Russian interests. But he does not indicate that he's going to rectify this problem by going on the offensive and attacking any country in the world. What sets off the real trouble is the April 2008 decision at Bucharest. This is the NATO summit at Bucharest, April 2008, where NATO says at the end of that summit that Georgia and Ukraine will become part of NATO. It's no accident, ladies and gentlemen, that on August or in August 2008, you had a war in Georgia, and then starting on February 22, 2014, conflict broke out in Ukraine. Right? That's what was driving the train here. And by the way, just one final point before I turn it to Carl: Angela Merkel and Nicolas Sarkozy were adamantly opposed to bringing Ukraine into NATO at the April 2008 Bucharest Summit. And Angela Merkel has recently said that the reason she opposed bringing Ukraine into NATO is that she understood, listen to these words, she understood that Putin would interpret it as a declaration of war against Russia. That's in April 2008. But what did the Americans do? The Americans steamrolled her, and they steamrolled Sarkozy. And they kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And it all blew up in their face on February 24th of this year. Your reaction to this film? Yeah. Pure fantasy. I, I, I can agree with you, John, that sort of the Bucharest meeting was fairly muddled. Um, argument which many people make that there was really no chance that Ukraine would become part of NATO uh, and that we have sort of given up on that. I believe that's simply not true. And in June of 2021, NATO's conference was held at Brussels in an official statement released by NATO. They said that they were reinvigorating their commitment to bring Ukraine into NATO. On November 10th, 2021, the United States and Ukraine issued a white paper laying out the strategic relationship between the United States and Ukraine, where we made it unequivocally clear we were committed to bringing Ukraine into NATO. Furthermore, we were arming and training the Ukrainians so that they were effectively becoming a de facto member of NATO. Many people wonder why the Ukrainians have done so well against the Russians on the battlefield. And they say it's because the Russians are incompetent, period, end of story. That's half of the story. The other half is that the Ukrainians were a formidable fighting force. And they were a formidable fighting force because we were training 10,000 Ukrainian troops per year from 2014 to 2024. And we were arming the Ukrainians. President Zelensky and his defense minister today refer to Ukraine as a de facto member of NATO. It was becoming a de facto member of NATO, in fact, and then in principle we remain committed to bringing it into the alliance. Now, just, okay, go ahead. No, I just, (laughs) let me make one quick point just on another issue that Carl raised. Carl raised the point that the Russians viewed Ukraine becoming a liberal democracy as a serious threat. And you said you agreed with me on that. The point I want to make is that NATO, mainly the United States, was pursuing a three pronged strategy. I tried to make that clear in my formal presentation NATO expansion, EU expansion, and turning it into a liberal, turning Ukraine into a liberal democracy. So it's important to understand that that third strand that Carl was talking about, where he and I agree, that third strand is inextricably linked to the second strand and the first strand in the minds of the Russians. So when he. Yeah. Go ahead. Now, in the minds of Putin, don't say that Putin and the Russians are necessarily the same things. I, I've been involved with Russia intensely since the early 90s. This year, when the invasion took place, a number of powerful Ukrainians who have been more likely to support uh, Moscow rallied around the flag. How do you explain that? Well, any time a foreign country invades your country, you're going to have a rally around the flag effect. Nationalism is going to kick in big time. I think there's no question that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has fueled Ukrainian nationalism, and it has brought the Ukrainian people together. I wouldn't deny that for one second. But didn't Putin take that into account? Yes, I'm sure he did. How? Look, Putin felt for certain that he was in a desperate situation. I mean, invading Ukraine is a matter of
0: Okay, let's say hello to Rodney Martin. Rodney, what's going on?
5: Boy, Luke, is this tech better?
0: Yes, yeah, sounds good, man.
7: Yeah, I'm sorry, Luke. I had to switch over to some better stuff. I'm, you know, I kind of got exiled to the CIA station at Nome, Alaska, you know, for being a bad boy. So
0: Okay, great. What's what's on your mind today?
7: <laughs> you know, I'm listening to Mersheimer, and he's been saying the same thing that he uh uh that he has been since you know, February, since the uh, Russian act military action. He's not far off, with the exception of his analysis of the Russian action uh, in Georgia. He literally, uh, the Russia just clubbed the hell out of the Georgians. The Georgians started that fight. The West tried to lie about it, like they tried to lie about some of the stuff happening in Ukraine. Turns out the Georgians fire, fired missiles first. They had a really yancy president at the time who, They threw out. The Ukrainians took him in because he had dual Ukrainian citizenship. Then the Ukrainians chased him across the border into Poland. It goes to show you the caliber of people that the West tends to prop up and support. Uh, It just doesn't seem to always work. And I think probably Zelensky's uh, credit card limit is uh, starting to uh, run out after the first of the year. You know, we said this when I was on your show the night. War is about resources, And no matter what the Western talking head says about Ukraine winning, uh, if they're winning, why are their lights not on? Um, Bottom line is the Russians finish off their electrical grid. That has widespread military effects. And the United States can't import, nor Europe can import, an electrical grid uh, into Ukraine. Once the Russians finish their bombardment going into the deep winter on uh, Ukraine's infrastructure, and once they staff up, and train up the three hundred thousand plus troops that have been called up, and start a you know major offensive after the first of the year. Uh, then, then there is going to be peace talks. Uh, recently, Milly uh, traitorous Millie, uh, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, has even called said that there needs to be a uh, uh, there needs to be a dialogue at this point. I think he sees the long term writing on the wall by June of twenty twenty three.
0: Okay, and uh, what do you think about uh, Kanye West's uh, trajectory over the past couple of months?
7: Well, has he been fifty one fifty yet? I'm I'm counting down the days because I think that's exactly where he's going. I mean, Nick's having food fights in uh, AMP, uh, not AMPMs, but In and Out Burgers. Really, he's throwing sprites on people that didn't even do anything to him. He's lucky he didn't get beat up there. I mean, it's this is just really all these people, Luke. Tend to, uh, uh, shall we say, self-destruct in in unique ways, and at some point you sometimes see these marriages of convenience. You know the Milo, the Kanye, and the Fuentes. I mean, we really shouldn't be surprised that these three are all together because this is probably their last breath of attempting to be relevant to uh, to their to whoever. Ever. But if you look at this in the eyes of normalcy, Luke this is self-destructive behavior. I mean, you know, you have, you know, uh, Kanye, people have gotten used to it. Uh, Milo, he washed out a long time ago when he talked about how great pedophilia was. And then you got Nick having food fights in a fast food restaurant someplace. And he's the grand strategist. Interestingly, he just attacked Marjorie Taylor Greene for being a Christian nationalist and divorced. I'm wondering how a Self-loathing, closeted, homosexual can be a closeted, uh, uh, you know, uh, can be a Christian nationalist.
0: Just curious. And uh, what do you make of Milo Yiannopoulos?
7: I told you, he looks like a uh, meth addict that picked up a cheap suit in a Salvation Army thrift store. Uh, This probably, I mean, people like him are so uh, self-destructive that they don't mind taking people down with them. And uh, probably there was some element to that in, in this Trump meeting. Now, Kanye has consistently probably been the most truthful on that. They had this dinner already arranged. And the fact that Nick Fuentes and and uh, uh, Milo didn't have the gumption to say, you know, we should not be in that dinner. The fact that they went in and did it, putting ego in their own personal agendas ahead of of Trump who they say they supported and said did so much for America speaks more about them than Trump's inability or as much as Trump's inability to shelter out people like that or to keep people like that out by having a strong entourage around him.
0: And what does it say about Donald Trump and his campaign and his operation that they that uh, Trump had dinner with Kanye and Nick Fuentes?
7: Well it says that Trump hasn't learned anything. You know, a good fighter in boxing learns from their loss. They learn. I mean they'll go back and look and replay it and said, you know, man, I sure took it there and will learn from their loss. Trump apparently has probably maybe he has talked himself into some of the you know stupid uh uh, comments that he's made about massive voter fraud, and I, I don't disagree that there is some manipulation of the uh, of the electoral system. I, that's been my criticism from the very beginning. Whether there was enough to turn an election, don't know. Uh, we'll probably never know uh, until years and years later. Now you know we're seeing what's happened with this Twitter thing, but uh, Trump apparently really has not taken. Uh, stepped back and understood that he only won in 2016 by 70,000 votes across three states and that he was vulnerable from the very beginning. He was vulnerable going into 2020. He had to really defend those 70,000-plus votes in those three states. He had to really hold the traditional Democratic blue wall, and he really didn't learn much uh, after he won in 2016, Uh, He didn't govern well uh, as a president. He didn't staff up the bureaucracy with the right people. And uh, uh, he certainly didn't learn anything going into 2020 knowing how vulnerable he was and how barely he won in 2016 versus 2020. And now going into 2024, he seems to be just running a repeat, a campaign on the cheap, based on his own personality, which is often detrimental to the candidate – Uh, regardless of, of, uh, of who they are. Good candidates, winning candidates have impulse control, discipline, and enough to have smarter people around them that says, I'm sorry, Mr. President or Mr. Candidate, you can't have that person in the same room with you. And the candidate and the president has to have the ability to listen and say, you know, here, pass the dude a note, tell him I'll talk to him on the phone privately. John F. Kennedy was a master at this. He carried out diplomacy through, you know, intermediaries outside of the government. He had very sketchy people uh, as friends, so did uh, every president did, but they did it in a smart manner. They didn't have them to dinner. I mean, I just keep coming back to the same same. Luke, guess who's coming to dinner? I mean, it's 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 crazy. You got to wonder if Trump was president, would he've had him into the White House for dinner? I think probably so.
0: And what do you think about people on the dissident right who
7: ally themselves with Kanye West? Well, that's a marriage of convenience. They're all hoping for a little bit of cash. I mean, think about it. one minute they you know they're trashing everything that he stood for and who he was, and then the next minute because he's touting around uh Nick for uh, whatever reason I don't know, but uh you, you got to wonder, you know just how deep these people's principles really are and what they're rooted in beyond self-gratification. I mean that's been the weakness of the dissident right from the very beginning they're always looking for a savior and now they don't even care who the savior is uh as opposed to a solid uh ideology that will grow beyond beyond them and who their savior is i mean how many saviors how many uh personalities have they had you know just since 2015 luke i can count about 30
0: yeah and so the, the left-wing perspective is that Kanye is simply saying the quiet part out loud. So the, the left-wing perspective is that the right is filled with, you know, hatred of Jews. Uh, Kanye is just saying the quiet part out loud. What do you think?
7: Well, Luke, we've had these discussions on old prior shows years back. We know where anti-Semitism has its, its really festering. It's not among white gentile christians it's in you know it's there's some deep-seated anti-semitic problems in the uh, uh black nationalist uh communities in the latino communities we talked about latin countries uh being second only to some to some arab countries as being the most anti-semitic i'm not making any news here not saying anything that's not factually supported and published by the adl and other you know pro uh you know anti-semitic groups i mean let's let's face it I mean, all these attacks on the streets of New York and L.A. Who are the perpetrators? I mean, it's it's not some little redhead, uh, redheaded, you know, rosy-haired little old lady and little old man coming out of the Presbyterian church, socking a, a Jewish person in the yarmulke. We know where the problems are, and um, the problem is the uh, uh, the problem has been diverted or deflected uh, by white liberals onto each other and the fellow you know white people who largely are you know really don't care one minute one iota about about race or identity they tilt they still cling to the american ideal of you know as america's about ideas anybody can be an american i mean in some cases can speak you know what i call kosher conservatives are more egalitarian than my liberals mm-hmm. and I mean, liberalism has become very exclusive, hasn't it, Luke? It's become – liberals have really closed off their club. Only some people – and there's a pecking order. I mean, some are more equal than others. They've really built themselves up quite an Orwell's animal farm over there. And it's coming – now it's starting to devour them. And some of the proponents and, uh, shall we say, engineers of that liberal – Uh, animal farm uh, probably are getting some blowback that they didn't really anticipate the old Frankenstein monster analogy. They've created something now that's growing beyond their control.
0: Yes. Now it it strikes me that what Kanye is doing the past couple of months vis-a-vis the Jews is primarily an expression of his contempt for white people. And for for many black people and some other people of color, they see Jews as the quintessential white people So it's not so much anti-Semitism, but it's anti-whitism with Jews as the quintessence of
7: whiteness. You know, Kanye's not articulated. He keeps bringing up the banks, freezing his account. And I'm assuming one of them had to do, he said Adidas, if you go back and follow that in terms of banking, Adidas probably had some sort of joint venture with Kanye at Deutsche Bank and then Adidas put a hold to hold that account pending whatever they work out with on the Yeezy brand. This is all corporate stuff, Luke, that whether Kanye was black, white, yellow, whatever, that any business person would be and would have to go through if they were unwinding a multi-billion dollar deal. Now, in the end, in the end, Kanye's going to get some payout because of intellectual property, particularly under EU law, Trump's Uh, A lot of the, uh, shall we say, uh, possession is nine-tenths and who manufactured it. He's going to get something. Adidas is going to take it in the shorts. Kanye, if he played it right, and he's made some mention of this, could actually do his own manufacturing and do his own direct marketing, kind of like Mike Lindell, the pillow guy. That guy's not stupid. He just direct markets his own product, doesn't go through a middleman. And I think what Kanye's biggest grievance is, if you listen to him, is he didn't think of this years ago, the fact that he went and made a, you know, a 60, 30, 74, whatever it is, he made a deal that he's now realizing he could have been, he could have made a lot more money had he done this. And by the way, uh, one of the other rappers, I think it was, I can't remember, it right offhand, there was a famous 19, late 90s or early 2000s video where he was, he was being advised to do that very thing. But Kanye uh, was really wrapped up in the brand thing, i.e. Adidas. So a lot of his grievances, Luke, appear to be business related. And the fact that he didn't have the sophistication uh, to have, you know, to make the proper business decisions, which he could have hired. I just am curious how many of those individuals he has a grievance against are actually Jewish versus something else.
0: Yeah. And so... The, I think the conventional response to Kanye's antics over the past two months is that he's mentally ill. Is that, the, is that the correct primary response to Kanye's trajectory?
7: I think it's an aggravating factor, to use a legal term, if you're sitting before a defendant. That's aggravating. I mean, certainly he has admitted that he has had some issues. So let's take him at his word. I'm not going to diagnose him. I'm not qualified. But let's just say that we take him at his word about some of the problems that he said he has had. Certainly, those would feed in to, say, shall we say, anger and paranoia and being generally pissed off. Now, the tax thing is another issue. He's mentioned a tax lien, the IRS lien and things of that nature. If that's the case, he won't be the first rapper or boxer or other high-profile person of color and even white, shall I say, poor white boxers used to suffer from it quite a bit, whose management, you know, stuffed their pockets uh, with, shall we say, shady percentages and shady fees and such, didn't pay the IRS. And the rule when you're managing your own money and somebody else's money, Luke, is you pay your taxes first, then you pay your mortgage, then you pay your lights, then you feed yourself, and then you can go play. It's called a waterfall. And anybody that doesn't follow those very, you know, simple steps, they're in for trouble, whether they make, you know, $100,000 a year, or they make, you know, $100 million a year. Yeah. Uh,
0: what do you think about the
7: rise of Christian nationalism? I, is, it a, is there a rise in Christian nationalism, or is there a rise in a, shall we say, a politicized Christianity Um you know, which I'm not necessarily. I'm not necessarily. I actually like the idea that Christians are getting more uh, political. I just question the theology. The theology that's coming out of some of these. Well, it seems to be to be more politics than it is anything else. And I'll tell you what's going to happen. Um, there's going to be a run at tax exempt status on churches. The more political they get. Um, back back when I worked in Congress years ago, a congressman who actually. Uh, ended up uh, when Lyndon Johnson moved to the Senate, uh, he took Jen- Johnson's house seat and had it till the late 90s, early 2000s, and he made that very case, and he came very close uh, in the 90s to having IRS regulation implemented that uh, IRS could audit uh, you know, what was coming out of churches, and if they were more political or as political as they are religious, they would lose their tax-exempt status. Now, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, I think that uh, it would be interesting. Now, I know some people that are high level in the, in the Mormon church, and I asked them quite right, straight up, what would happen if the United States government uh, instituted or taxing churches? And I was told by, and this was a stake president of the Mormon church, that they had been prepared for years to pay taxes. Their, the Mormon church is structured as a corporation, and that they are prepared to pay taxes. Now, it'd be interesting how many churches would fall in line, and how many would uh, would simply refuse. And what the Catholics would do, given that they are a branch of the of the Holy See of the Holy See. So, uh, it's interesting. But I think that's where this is headed. I think there's going to be a confrontation between the politics, the politicization of Christianity and all religions, and uh, the attempt by an ever left leaning country to seize that tax-exempt status, because they view that as a lot of money.
0: And what about the movement towards paying blacks' uh, reparations? Do you think this is something that's going to happen in this country? Well,
7: that's going to put Newsom on the on the spot. I think it's something that uh, is going to be harder for him to sign than what a lot of people think. How do you cut a $200,000 check from the state treasury to people that have, you know, no connection, virtually no connection, and uh, to slavery and may not, and how do you charge someone taxes? Let's say, for instance, a a new arrival. Let's take the Democrats' uh, key constituency in California, uh, a Latino from Honduras that has just gotten legalized in the last five years has no connection to California slave history that California was a free state. So that's going to be kind of interesting in and of itself. So how do you put a tax bill on this, uh, you know, Honduran that has only been a citizen for five years that he has to pay or she has to pay and their family has to pay reparations uh, to someone who may not even have any history uh, to being a slave. It could be, you know, I mean, just think about how, how this would go down. I I think in the end, uh, Newsom will punt. I think he'll come up with some sort of, we're going to invest in some special college funds and things of that nature. You know, frankly, California doesn't have to do it at all. They were never a slave state. That was never their thing. What do you think of Alex Jones? Um. I think he's just a sh- and it was just another shock jock until he ran into the Sandy Hook thing, and then once he bit a hold of the Sandy Hook thing, it's almost like he couldn't let go. And uh, now, will he ever pay any of that money back? No, uh, he won't. I think uh, when he what he admitted on the stand was he got and kind of, kind of rode this wave and took it too far. I think that's probably as truthful as you're going to answer you're going to get from him. But I think he caters to his audience i think he tells his audience what he wants to see now interesting when he had kanye and fuentes on he was the most reasonable person uh in that room and was actually trying to throw some lifelines to try to tone it down and uh i think he couldn't wait to get them off his his show
0: yeah and uh do you have any thoughts on the sam bankman freed thing with ftx
7: collapsing? Well, this is going to show, I mean, the Republicans only have the House. They have subpoena power in the House. Now, how are they going to subpoena him? Now, supposedly he's testifying before Maxine Waters, who he has really filled her uh, Armani bag full of uh, of loot with in the past. So it's interesting that the Democrats are trying to have a hearing in their lame duck session when they're outgoing as a majority uh probably to try to, you know, have him come in and say that he never, you know, he doesn't know anything and that he never did anything illegal, blah, blah, blah. When the Republicans get the subpoena power, they should exercise that uh very aggressively. They should uh not only subpoena him and whether they can get him to come from the Bahamas. I don't think he's gonna show up in person at the Democratic hearing, Luke. He's gonna show up you know by video phone uh which means everybody can ask him why he didn't show up in person and then he'll start pleading the fifth and that could be the end of it that would be the only question i'd ask him if he's not there if he's on the teleprompter if he's on the video is asking why aren't you here and as soon as he claims the fifth then you know point set match but anyway uh, uh whether he is criminally prosecuted it's going to be interesting because where he is sitting there is no extradition treaty with the united states and the likelihood of getting him out of there it would be slim and none if he really thought that his uh, uh proverbial fat end was uh was in legal jeopardy but but his parents and the uh, F, uh fcc not fcc uh ftc federal trade committee uh, uh could be subpoenaed there is a cozy relationship between i think his father and the chairman of the federal trade commission uh that could be explored and you just literally got to line up the dominoes through subpoenas and testimony and and then knock them all down. And I'd call in every Democratic politician that got a contribution from FTX, put them on under, under subpoena, under oath, and ask them if they're going to give the money back and what they did with it. And then beyond that, they're going to have to block these appropriations to Ukraine. Ukraine laundered the money. The problem is these Republicans are are so spineless and they're so infested with neocons that that will probably be the catch that lets them let this guy get away. The fact that he laundered the money in Ukraine and they are so committed to this neocon wet dream in Ukraine uh, that is destroying Ukraine, killing Ukrainians, and, uh, and bankrupting the country. Uh, and uh, so uh, – Anyway, uh, that's my take on it. It's, it's complicated, but I think he'll probably get off because the Republicans will let him get off because of the Ukraine connection.
0: And uh, what do you think about the power of sports to connect uh, people, particularly guys, or at least at a superficial level, even people who are somewhat socially awkward or even antisocial uh, sports fandom is a fairly effortless way that they can connect with other people and find a little bit more meaning and purpose in their lives.
7: used to be, you'd think. Uh, The problem is now sports is under fire. Um, Sports, you know, uh, uh, I mean, think about it. Does the uh, NBA and NFL have as much uh, uh, fandom and support as they used to since they got political and got woke? I mean, think about it. Uh, I, I will freely admit I used to be, a big fan of the L.A. Lakers back in the Showtime era. Not so anymore. I haven't watched them in a long, 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 long time. Uh, so uh, I, you you got uh, to wonder. There's a lot of uh, things that used to bind us socially, Luke, that have now just devolved because of the politics and this culture gap where we've split into two countries. And you just gotta wonder, you know. I, I hear I hear Democrats all day today. I paid it I was looking at some of their feeds and watching some of their stupid media shows, and they were saying there was a Vice News did a thing on the dark side of the '90s, and uh, it said uh, that Rush Limbaugh divided America and uh, blah blah blah. Well, it's pretty clear that uh, the left believes that you're divisive unless you agree with them. So unless you agree at the sexualization of children, uh, drag queen story hours, uh, uh, and all sorts of other of their other elements of their cultural degeneracy, then you're divisive. They have no empathy or no, or, you know, no, 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 no inkling or no desire of meeting anybody in the middle or even understanding. So um, I don't think that sports plays as big a role as it used to in uniting people. Um, I mean you see people fight, I mean, look at the fights they have uh in Europe and sometimes it's really not over who's winning uh, uh the game, Luke. Um and uh, in the United States uh you got people burning jerseys, and in some cases rightfully so. So I don't I think a lot of the cultural norms and the societal elements that used to bring us together have so broken down into this culture war and this culture what I call cultural division. That, you know, I, I don't see any way, I don't see a path back, because it keeps getting wider and wider and wider. And at some point, people have got to ask themselves, what's, you know, what is, is there a cure? Uh, is there a cure? Is there a, uh, a, a con, is there a constitutional solution? I no longer believe there's a constitutional solution to what ails the United States, particularly in light of people's uh, willingness, just willingness to take social media uh as information and the corruption of the mainstream media
0: Okay, Rodney, I'm going to run along okay. unless there's any other topic that you wanted to hit before we wrap up
7: No, no, just watch, uh, you know, for all of the proverbial uh, pontification on, on Ukraine, war is ultimately about resources and Russia has finally started hitting the resource that the United States can't, the United States can send over some sh- by the way The German, uh, 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 not armaments minister, boy, that'd be Albert Speer, but the defense minister said uh, today or yesterday that they couldn't send any more shells to Ukraine because they were down to just a weak supply for the Bundeswehr and was using that to try to knuckle the the, uh, Bundestag's appropriations process to resupply uh, the Bundeswehr, which has been depleted. So, I mean… Germany had probably one of the beefiest, followed by France uh, in terms of uh, military. I mean, they're a major arms exporter. So you got to wonder if they're tapped out and Milley is calling for uh, negotiations, you got to read between the lines between what these people are saying versus what the propagandists are saying. And there you'll kind of find a line. To the truth, um, we can't rebuild a, a, a power grid. We can't rebuild water and wastewater systems, and it's going to be a cold winter. This thing's over by probably by April next year.
0: Okay, Rodney, good to talk to you. All right, take, take care. care, Luke. Okay, Bye-bye. so looking at Twitter, recently added cozy streamer E. Michael Jones has come out against Kanye West. So E. Michael Jones says Kanye just blew one of the greatest political opportunities in American history. Instead of announcing he was going to work with Elon Musk to provide anti-ADL hate speech, replatforming protection. Kanye ranted about Nazis for three hours on Alex Jones. Kanye is his own man, and he was aided in the suicidal gesture by his campaign manager, Milo Yiannopoulos, who announced that he had arranged the dinner at Mar-A Lago to hurt Trump. So that's the Perspective of E. Michael Jones, that will do it for me. Take care. Bye-bye.